Tim isn't a perfect man. He's not the perfect husband or father. He's a guy struggling to provide for his family. No matter how hard he tries, it's all falling apart. When it looks like things can't get any worse, the accident happens. Tim can't remember a thing, only the sound of twisting metal, of the nightmares, and of the coyote stalking him through the halls of still waters. The doctors are lying, hiding behind false and stolen faces. Tim and the other patients are prisoners. Or is it all in his head, if he could only just remember? Follow Tim on his downward spiral through the asylum, through Helen back, as he uncovers the truth of what happened to his family. Tim E. Less is a disturbed horror thriller of insanity, chemical seduction, and true nightmares come to life. Silent Hill meets the cell. Sometimes the real horror is remembering. Tim E. Less by Lucas Millian. Available on Amazon Kindle and Amazon Paperback. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. You're not new to the show. You know who they are and what they do. Slippers, novelty shirts from your favorite cult films. Yeah. Okay. This is a reading episode. Next episode should be a full episode, unless there's another reading episode. So, thank you for listening to PGTTCM. Go to us at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.podbean.com, where you can find our patron button to help, I don't know, support the show. You can also go to paypal.me slash pgttcm. And uh, why not go to audibletrials.com slash pgttcm? Sign up for Audible. Get a free book. We get something. You get something. It's all good. And enough for ads. And how about edited and produced by D.B. Spitzer. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is part of the Dark Myths Collective, and you can find out more about Dark Myths and all their many, many podcasts by going to darkmyths.org. I'd like to recommend Blurry Photos with David Flora. You can find them at blurryphotos.org. And it is a podcast about the unexplained and the unexplored. They've got a vast library to listen to, and it's a lot of fun. All right, on with the show. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos starts now. Recorded by Peter Yearsley. Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by M.R. James. Number 13 Among the towns of Jutland, Vibor justly holds a high place. It is the seat of a bishopric. It has a handsome but almost entirely new cathedral, a charming garden, a lake of great beauty, and many storks. Near it is Hal, accounted one of the prettiest things in Denmark, and hard by is Finderup, where Mersk Stieg murdered King Erkliping on St. Cecilia's Day in the year 1286. Fifty-six blows of square-headed iron maces were traced on Erk's skull when his tomb was opened in the 17th century. But I'm not writing a guidebook. There are good hotels in Vibor, Priceless and the Phoenix, 
are all that can be desired. But my cousin, whose experiences I have to tell you now, went to the Golden Lion the first time that he visited Feeborg. He has not been there since, and the following pages will perhaps explain the reason of his abstention. The Golden Lion is one of the very few houses in the town that were not destroyed in the Great Fire of 1726, which practically demolished the cathedral, the Sortenkirche, the Raus, and so much else that was old and interesting. It is a great red brick house, that is, the front of it is of brick, with corby steps on the gables and a text over the door, but the courtyard into which the omnibus drives is of black and white wood and plaster. The sun was declining in the heavens when my cousin walked up to the door, and the light smote full upon the imposing façade of the house. He was delighted with the old-fashioned aspect of the place, and promised himself a thoroughly satisfactory and amusing stay in an inn so typical of old Jutland. It was not business in the ordinary sense of the word that had brought Mr. Anderson to Viborg. He was engaged upon some researches into the church history of Denmark, and it had come to his knowledge that in the Reichsakku of Viborg there were papers saved from the fire relating to the last days of Roman Catholicism in the country. He proposed, therefore, to spend a considerable time, perhaps as much as a fortnight or three weeks, in examining and copying these, and he hoped that the Golden Lion would be able to give him a room of sufficient size to serve alike as a bedroom and a study. His wishes were explained to the landlord, and after a certain amount of thought, the latter suggested that perhaps it might be the best way for the gentleman to look at one or two of the larger rooms and pick one for himself. It seemed a good idea. The top floor was soon rejected, as entailing too much getting upstairs after the day's work. The second floor contained no room of exactly the dimensions required, but on the first floor there was a choice of two or three rooms, which would, so far as the size went, suit admirably. The landlord was strongly in favour of number 17, but Mr. Anderson pointed out that its windows commanded only the blank wall of the next house, and that it would be very dark in the afternoon. Either number 12 or number 14 would be better, for both of them looked on the street, and the bright evening light and the pretty view would more than compensate him for the additional amount of noise. Eventually, number 12 was selected. Like its neighbours, it had three windows, all on one side of the room. It was fairly high and unusually long. There was, of course, no fireplace, but the stove was handsome and rather old, a cast-iron erection, on the side of which was a representation of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, and the inscription, Ibo Moza Capita To O Tu, above. Nothing else in the room was remarkable. The only interesting picture was an old coloured print of the town, date about 1820. Supper time was approaching, but when Anderson, refreshed by the ordinary ablutions, descended the staircase, there was still a few minutes before the bell rang. He devoted them to examining the list of his fellow lodgers. As is usual in Denmark, their names were displayed on a large blackboard, divided into columns and lines, the numbers of the rooms being painted in at the beginning of each line. 
the list was not exciting. There was an advocate, or Sachführer, a German, and some bagmen from Copenhagen. The one and only point which suggested any food for thought was the absence of any number 13 from the tale of the rooms, and even this was a thing which Anderson had already noticed half a dozen times in his experience of Danish hotels. He could not help wondering whether the objection to that particular number, common as it is, was so widespread and so strong as to make it difficult to let a room so ticketed. And he resolved to ask the landlord if he and his colleagues in the profession had actually met with many clients who refused to be accommodated in the 13th room. He had nothing to tell me, I am giving the story as I heard it from him, about what passed at supper, and the evening, which was spent in unpacking and arranging his clothes, books and papers, was not more eventful. Towards eleven o'clock he resolved to go to bed, but with him, as with a good many other people nowadays, an almost necessary preliminary to bed, if he meant to sleep, was the reading of a few pages of print, and he now remembered that the particular book which he had been reading in the train, and which alone would satisfy him at that present moment, was in the pocket of his greatcoat, then hanging on a peg outside the dining room. To run down and secure it was the work of a moment, and as the passages were by no means dark, it was not difficult for him to find his way back to his own door. So, at least, he thought. But when he arrived there, and turned the handle, the door entirely refused to open, and he caught the sound of a hasty movement towards it from within. He had tried the wrong door, of course. Was his own room to the right or to the left? He glanced at the number. It was thirteen. His room would be on the left, and so it was. And not before he had been in bed for some minutes, had read his wanted three or four pages of his book, blown out his light, and turned over to go to sleep, did it occur to him that, whereas on the blackboard of the hotel there had been no number thirteen, there was undoubtedly a room numbered thirteen in the hotel. He felt rather sorry he had not chosen it for his own. Perhaps he might have done the landlord a little service by occupying it, and given him the chance of saying that a well-born English gentleman had lived in it for three weeks and liked it very much. But probably it was used as a servant's room, or something of the kind. After all, it was most likely not so large or so good a room as his own and he looked drowsily about the room, which was fairly perceptible, in the half-light from the street lamp. It was a curious effect, he thought. Rooms usually look larger in a dim light than a full one, but this seemed to have contracted in length, and grown proportionately higher. Oh well, sleep was more important than these vague ruminations, and to sleep he went. On the day after his arrival, Anderson attacked the Reichsakyu of Fibor. He was, as one might expect in Denmark, kindly received, and access to all that he wished to see was made as easy for him as possible. The documents laid before him were far more numerous and interesting than he had at all anticipated. Besides official papers, there was a large bundle of correspondence relating to Bishop Jorgen Freys, the last Roman Catholic who held the sea, and in these there cropped up many amusing and 
what are called intimate details of private life and individual character. There was much talk of a house owned by the bishop, but not inhabited by him, in the town. Its tenant was apparently somewhat of a scandal, and a stumbling block to the reforming party. He was a disgrace, they wrote, to the city. He practiced secret and wicked arts, and had sold his soul to the enemy. It was of a piece with the gross corruption and superstition of the Babylonish church, that such a viper and blood-sucking Trollmund should be patronized and harbored by the bishop. The bishop met these reproaches boldly. He protested his own abhorrence of all such things as secret arts, and required his antagonists to bring the matter before the proper court, of course, the spiritual court, and sift it to the bottom. No one could be more ready and willing than himself to condemn Bach Nicholas Franken if the evidence showed him to have been guilty of any of the crimes informally alleged against him. Anderson had not time to do more than glance at the next letter of the Protestant leader, Rasmus Nielsen, before the record office was closed for the day, but he gathered its general tenor, which was to the effect that Christian men were now no longer bound by the decisions of bishops of Rome, and that the bishop's court was not, and could not be, a fit or competent tribunal, so grave and weighty a cause. On leaving the office, Mr. Anderson was accompanied by the old gentleman who presided over it, and as they walked, the conversation, very naturally, turned to the papers of which I have just been speaking. Herr Scavenius, the archivist of Viborg, though very well informed as to the general run of the documents under his charge, was not a specialist in those of the Reformation period. He was much interested in what Anderson had to tell him about them. He looked forward with great pleasure, he said, to seeing the publication in which Mr. Anderson spoke of embodying their contents. This house of the Bishop Freys, he added, it is a great puzzle to me where it could have stood. I have studied carefully the topography of old Viborg, but it is most unlucky of the old terrier of the bishop's property which was made in 1560, and of which we have the greater part in the Arcue, just the piece which had the list of the town property is missing. Never mind, perhaps I shall some day succeed to find him. After taking some exercise, I forget exactly how or where, Anderson went back to the Golden Lion, his supper, his game of patience, and his bed. On the way to his room, it occurred to him that he had forgotten to talk to the landlord about the omission of number 13 from the hotel board, and also that he might as well make sure that number 13 did actually exist before he made any reference to the matter. The decision was not difficult to arrive at. There was the door with its number, as plain as could be, and work of some kind was evidently going on inside it, for as he neared the door, he could hear footsteps and voices, or a voice, within. During the few seconds in which he halted to make sure of the number, the footsteps ceased, seemingly very near the door, and he was a little startled at hearing a quick, hissing breathing, as of a person in strong excitement. He went on to his own room, and again he was surprised to find how much smaller it seemed now than it had when he selected it.
It was a slight disappointment, but only slight. If he found it really not large enough, he could very easily shift to another. In the meantime, he wanted something. As far as I can remember, it was a pocket handkerchief. Out of his portmanteau, which had been placed by the porter on a very inadequate trestle or stool against the wall at the farthest end of the room from his bed. Here was a very curious thing. The portmanteau was not to be seen. It had been moved by officious servants. Doubtless the contents had been put in the wardrobe. No, none of them were there. This was vexatious. The idea of a theft he dismissed at once. Such things rarely happen in Denmark. But some piece of stupidity had certainly been performed, which is not so uncommon. And the steward peer must be severely spoken to. Whatever it was that he wanted, it was not so necessary to his comfort that he could not wait until the morning for it. And he therefore settled not to ring the bell and disturb the servants. He went to the window, the right-hand window it was, and looked out on the quiet street. There was a tall building opposite, with large spaces of dead wall, no passers-by, a dark night, and very little to be seen of any kind. The light was behind him, and he could see his own shadow clearly cast on the wall opposite, also the shadow of the bearded man in number eleven on the left who passed to and fro in shirt-sleeves once or twice, and was seen first brushing his hair, and later on in a nightgown. Also the shadow of the occupant of number 13 on the right. This might be more interesting. Number 13 was, like himself, leaning on his elbows on the window-sill, looking out into the street. He seemed to be a tall, thin man, or was it by any chance a woman? At least, it was someone who covered his or her head with some kind of drapery before going to bed, and, he thought, must be possessed of a red lampshade, and the lamp must be flickering very much. There was a distinct playing up and down of a dull red light on the opposite wall. He craned out a little to see if he could make any more of the figure, but beyond a fold of some light, perhaps white, material on the windowsill, he could see nothing. Now came a distant step in the street, and its approach seemed to recall number 13, to a sense of his exposed position, for very swiftly and suddenly he swept aside from the window, and his red light went out. Anderson, who had been smoking a cigarette, laid the end of it on the window sill, and went to bed. Next morning he was woken by the steward pier with hot water, etc., he roused himself, and after thinking out the correct Danish words, said, as distinctly as he could, You must not move my portmanteau. Where is it? As is not uncommon, the maid laughed, and went away without making any distinct answer. Anderson, rather irritated, sat up in bed, intending to call her back, but he remained sitting up, staring straight in front of him. There was his portmanteau on its trestle, exactly where he had seen the porter put it when he first arrived. This was a rude shock for a man who prided himself on his accuracy of observation. How it could possibly have escaped him the night before, he did not pretend to understand. At any rate, there it was now. The daylight showed more than the portmanteau. 
it let the true proportions of the room with its three windows appear and satisfied its tenant that his choice, after all, had not been a bad one. When he was almost dressed, he walked to the middle one of the three windows to look out at the weather. Another shock awaited him. Strangely unobservant he must have been last night. He could have sworn ten times over that he had been smoking at the right-hand window the last thing before he went to bed, and here was his cigarette end on the sill of the middle window. He started to go down to breakfast. Rather late, but number 13 was later. Here were his boots still outside his door. A gentleman's boots. So then number 13 was a man, not a woman. Just then, he caught sight of the number on the door. It was 14. He thought he must have passed number 13 without noticing it. Three stupid mistakes in 12 hours were too much for a methodical, accurate-minded man so he turned back to make sure. The next number to 14 was number 12, his own room. There was no number 13 at all. After some minutes devoted to a careful consideration of everything he had had to eat and drink during the last 24 hours, Anderson decided to give the question up. If his eyes or his brain were giving way, he would have plenty of opportunities for ascertaining that fact. If not, then he was evidently being treated to a very interesting experience. In either case, the development of events would certainly be worth watching. During the day, he continued his examination of the Episcopal correspondence which I have already summarized. To his disappointment, it was incomplete. Only one other letter could be found which referred to the affair of Monk Nicholas Franken. It was from the Bishop Jorgen Freys to Rasmus Nielsen. He said, Although we are not in the least degree inclined to assent to your judgment concerning our court, and shall be prepared, if need be, to withstand you to the uttermost in that behalf, yet, forasmuch as our trusty and well-beloved Magnichlos Franken, against whom you have dared to allege certain false and malicious charges, hath been suddenly removed from among us. It is apparent that the question for this time falls. But forasmuch as you further allege that the Apostle and Evangelist, St. John, in his heavenly apocalypse, describes the Holy Roman Church under the guise and symbol of the Scarlet Woman, be it known to you, etc. Search as he might, Anderson could find no sequel to this letter nor any clue to the cause or manner of the removal of the Casus Belli. He could only suppose that Franken had died suddenly, and as there were only two days between the date of Nielsen's last letter, when Franken was evidently still in being, and that of the bishop's letter, the death must have been completely unexpected. In the afternoon, he paid a short visit to Hull, and took his tea at Berkelun, nor could he notice, though he was in a somewhat nervous frame of mind, that there was any indication of such a failure of eye or brain as his experiences of the morning had led him to fear. At supper he found himself next to the landlord. What, he asked him after some indifferent conversation, is the reason why in most of the hotels one visits in this country 
The number 13 is left out of the list of rooms. I see you have none here. The landlord seemed amused. To think that you should have noticed a thing like that. I've thought about it once or twice myself, to tell the truth. An educated man, I've said, has no business with these superstitious notions. I was brought up myself here, in the high school of Viborg, and our old master was always a man to set his face against anything of that kind. He's been dead now this many years. A fine upstanding man he was, and ready with his hands as well as his head. I recollect us boys one snowy day. Here he plunged into reminiscence. Then you don't think there is any particular objection to having a number 13, said Anderson. Ah, oh, to be sure. Well, you understand, I was brought up to the business by my poor old father. He kept an hotel in Aarhus first, and then, when we were born, he moved to Vibor here, which was his native place, and had the phoenix here until he died. That was in um, 1876. Then I started business in Sirkovor, and only the year before last I moved into this house. Then followed more details as to the state of the house and business when first taken over. And when you came here, was there a number 13? No, no, I was going to tell you about that. You see, in a place like this, the commercial class, the travellers, are what we have to provide for in general. And put them in number 13? Why, they'd as soon sleep in the street, or sooner. As far as I'm concerned myself, it wouldn't make a penny difference to me what the number of my room was. And so I've often said to them, but they stick to it that it brings them bad luck. Quantities of stories they have among them of men that have slept in a number 13 and never been the same again, or lost their best customers, or one thing and another, said the landlord, after searching for a more graphic phrase. Then what do you use your number 13 for, said Anderson, conscious as he said the words of a curious anxiety quite disproportionate to the importance of the question. My number 13? Why don't I tell you that there isn't such a thing in the house? I thought you might have noticed that. If there was, it would be next door to your own room. Well, yes, only I happened to think, that is, I fancied last night that I had seen a door numbered 13 in that passage, and really I'm almost certain I must have been right, for I saw it the night before as well. Of course, Herr Christensen laughed this notion to scorn, as Anderson had expected, and emphasised with much iteration the fact that no number 13 existed, or had existed before him, in that hotel. Anderson was in some ways relieved by his certainty, but still puzzled, and he began to think that the best way to make sure whether he had indeed been subject to an illusion or not was to invite the landlord to his room to smoke a cigar later on in the evening. Some photographs of English towns which he had with him formed a sufficiently good excuse. Herr Christensen was flattered by the invitation and most willingly accepted it. At about ten o'clock he was to make his appearance, but before that Anderson had some letters to write, and retired for the purpose of writing them. He almost blushed to himself at confessing it, but he could not deny that it was the fact that he was becoming quite nervous about the question of the existence of number 13. So much so, 
that he approached his room by way of number 11, in order that he might not be obliged to pass the door, or the place where the door ought to be. He looked quickly and suspiciously about the room when he entered it, but there was nothing beyond that indefinable air of being smaller than usual to warrant any misgivings. There was no question of the presence or absence of his portmanteau tonight. He had himself emptied it of its contents and lodged it under his bed. With a certain effort, he dismissed the thought of number 13 from his mind and sat down to his writing. His neighbours were quiet enough. Occasionally a door banged in the passage and a pair of boots was thrown out, or a bagman walked past humming to himself and outside, from time to time, a cart thundered over the atrocious cobblestones, or a quick step hurried along the flags. Anderson finished his letters, ordered in whiskey and soda, and then went to the window and studied the dead wall opposite and the shadows upon it. As far as he could remember, number 14 had been occupied by the lawyer, a staid man who said little at meals, being generally engaged in studying a small bundle of papers beside his plate. Apparently, however, he was in the habit of giving vent to his animal spirits when alone. Why else should he be dancing? The shadow from the next room evidently showed that he was. Again and again his thin form crossed the window, his arms waved and a gaunt leg was kicked up with surprising agility. He seemed to be barefooted, and the floor must be well laid, for no sound betrayed his movements. Safira Herr Anders Jetsen, dancing at ten o'clock at night in a hotel bedroom, seemed a fitting subject for a historical painting in the grand style, and Anderson's thoughts, like those of Emily in The Mysteries of Udolpho, began to arrange themselves in the following lines. When I return to my hotel at ten o'clock p.m., the waiters think I am unwell. I do not care for them. But when I've locked my chamber door and put my boots outside, I dance all night upon the floor. And even if my neighbours swore, I'd go on dancing all the more, for I'm acquainted with the law, and in despite of all their jaw, their protests I deride. Had not the landlord at this moment knocked at the door, it is probable quite a long poem might have been laid before the reader. To judge from his look of surprise when he found himself in the room, Herr Christensen was struck, as Anderson had been, by something unusual in its aspect, but he made no remark. Anderson's photographs interested him mightily, and formed the text of many autobiographical discourses. Nor is it quite clear how the conversation could have been diverted into the desired channel of number 13 had not the lawyer at this moment begun to sing, and to sing in a manner which could leave no doubt in anyone's mind that he was either exceedingly drunk or raving mad. It was a high, thin voice that they heard, and it seemed dry, as if from long disuse. Of words or tune there was no question. It went sailing up to a surprising height, and was carried down with a despairing moan, as of a winter wind in a hollow chimney, or an organ whose wind fails suddenly. It was a really horrible sound, 
and Anderson felt that if he had been alone, he must have fled for refuge in society to some neighbor bagman's room. The landlord sat open-mouthed. I don't understand it, he said at last, wiping his forehead. It is dreadful. I've heard it once before, but I made sure it was a cat. Is he mad? said Anderson. He must be. And what a sad thing. Such a good customer, too. So successful in his business, by what I hear, and a young family to bring up. Just then came an impatient knock at the door, and the knocker entered without waiting to be asked. It was the lawyer in Desabie, and very rough-haired, and very angry he looked. I beg pardon, sir, he said. Well, I should be much obliged if you would kindly dis... Here he stopped, for it was evident that neither of the persons before him was responsible for the disturbance. And after a moment's lull, it swelled forth again, more wildly than before. But what in the name of heaven does it mean? broke out the lawyer. Where is it? Who is it? Am I going out of my mind? Surely, Herr Jensen, it comes from your room next door. Isn't there a cat or something stuck in the chimney? This was the best that occurred to Anderson to say, and he realized its futility as he spoke. But anything was better than to stand and listen to that horrible voice, and look at the broad white face of the landlord, all perspiring and quivering, as he clutched the arms of his chair. Impossible, said the lawyer, impossible. There is no chimney. I came here because I was convinced the noise was going on here. It was certainly in the next room to mine. Was there no door between yours and mine? said Anderson eagerly. No, sir, said Herr Jensen, rather sharply. At least not this morning. Ah, said Anderson, nor tonight. I'm not sure, said the lawyer with some hesitation. Suddenly the crying or singing voice in the next room died away, and the singer was heard seemingly to laugh to himself in a crooning manner. The three men actually shivered at the sound. Then there was a silence. Come, said the lawyer. What have you to say, Herr Christensen? What does this mean? Good heaven, said Christensen. How should I tell? I know no more than you, gentlemen. I pray I may never hear such a noise again. So do I, said Herr Jensen. And he added something under his breath. Anderson thought it sounded like the last words of the Psalter. Omnis spiritus laudet dominum. But he could not be sure. But we must do something, said Anderson. The three of us. Shall we go and investigate in the next room? But that is Herr Jensen's room, wailed the landlord. It is no use. He has come from there himself. I am not so sure, said Jensen. I think this gentleman is right. We must go and see. The only weapons of defense that could be mustered on the spot were a stick and umbrella. The expedition went out into the passage, not without quakings. There was a deadly quiet outside, but a light shone from under the next door. Anderson and Jensen approached it. The latter turned to the handle and gave a sudden vigorous push. No use. The door stood fast. Here, Christensen, said Jensen. Will you go and fetch the strongest servant you have in the place? We must see this through. The landlord nodded and hurried off, glad to be away from the scene of action. Jensen and Anderson remained outside, looking at the door. It is number 13, you see, said the latter. Yes, there is your door and there is mine, 
said Jensen. My room has three windows in the daytime, said Anderson with difficulty, suppressing a nervous laugh. By George, so has mine, said the lawyer, turning and looking at Anderson. His back was now to the door. In that moment the door opened, and an arm came out and clawed at his shoulder. It was clad in ragged yellowish linen, and the bare skin where it could be seen had long grey hair upon it. Anderson was just in time to pull Jensen out of its reach with a cry of disgust and fright when the door shut again and a low laugh was heard. Jensen had seen nothing, but when Anderson hurriedly told him what a risk he had run, he fell into a great state of agitation and suggested that they should retire from the enterprise and lock themselves up in one or other of their rooms. However, while he was developing this plan, the landlord and two able-bodied men arrived on the scene all looking rather serious and alarmed. Jensen met them with a torrent of description and explanation, which did not at all tend to encourage them for the fray. The men dropped the crowbars they had brought and said flatly that they were not going to risk their throats in that devil's den. The landlord was miserably nervous and undecided, conscious that if the danger were not faced, his hotel was ruined and very loath to face it himself. Luckily, Anderson hit upon a way of rallying the demoralized force. Is this, he said, the Danish courage I've heard so much of? It isn't a German in there, and if it was, we are five to one. The two servants and Jensen were stung into action by this, and made a dash at the door. Stop, said Anderson. Don't lose your heads. You stay out here with the light, landlord, and one of you two men break in the door, and don't go in when it gives way. The men nodded, and the younger stepped forward, raised his crowbar, and dealt a tremendous blow on the upper panel. The result was not in the least what any of them anticipated. There was no cracking or rending of wood, only a dull sound, as if the solid wall had been struck. The man dropped his tool with a shout, and began rubbing his elbow. His cry drew their eyes upon him for a moment, then Anderson looked at the door again. It was gone. The plaster wall of the passage stared him in the face, with a considerable gash in it where the crowbar had struck it. Number 13 had passed out of existence. For a brief space, they stood perfectly still, gazing at the blank wall. An early cock in the yard beneath was heard to crow, and as Anderson glanced in the direction of the sound, he saw through the window at the end of the long passage that the eastern sky was paling to the dawn. Perhaps, said the landlord with hesitation, you gentlemen would like another room for tonight, a double-bedded one? Neither Jensen nor Anderson was averse to the suggestion. They felt inclined to hunt in couples after their late experience. It was found convenient when each of them went to his room to collect the articles he wanted for the night, that the other should go with him and hold the candle. They noticed that both number 12 and number 14 had three windows. Next morning, the same party reassembled in number 12. The landlord was naturally anxious to avoid engaging outside help, and yet it was imperative that the mystery attaching to that part of the house should be cleared up. Accordingly, the two servants had been induced to take upon them the function of carpenters. The furniture was cleared away, 
and at the cost of a good many irretrievably damaged planks, that portion of the floor was taken up, which lay nearest to number 14. You will naturally suppose that a skeleton, say that of Nicholas Franken, was discovered. That was not so. What they did find lying between the beams which supported the flooring was a small copper box. In it was a neatly folded vellum document with about 20 lines of writing. Both Anderson and Jensen, who proved to be something of a paleographer, were much excited by this discovery, which promised to afford the key to these extraordinary phenomena. I possess a copy of an astrological work which I have never read. It has, by way of frontispiece, a woodcut by Hans Sibeld Beham, representing a number of sages seated round a table. This detail may enable connoisseurs to identify the book. I cannot myself recollect its title, and it is not at this moment within reach. But the fly-leaves of it are covered with writing, and during the ten years in which I have owned the volume, I have not been able to determine which way up this writing ought to be read, much less in what language it is. Not dissimilar was the position of Anderson and Jensen after the protracted examination to which they submitted the document in the copper box. After two days' contemplation of it, Jensen, who was the bolder spirit of the two, hazarded the conjecture that the language was either Latin or Old Danish, Anderson ventured upon no surmises, and was very willing to surrender the box and the parchment to the Historical Society of Viborg to be placed in their museum. I had the whole story from him a few months later, as we sat in a wood near Uppsala, after a visit to the library there, where we, or rather I, had laughed over the contract by which Daniel Salthenius, in later life Professor of Hebrew at Königsberg, sold himself to Satan. Anderson was not really amused. Young idiot, he said, meaning Salthenius, who was only an undergraduate when he committed that indiscretion. How did he know what company he was courting? And when I suggested the usual considerations, he only grunted. That same afternoon, he told me what you have read. But he refused to draw any inferences from it, and to assent to any that I drew for him. End of number 13 from Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by M. R. James. Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by M. R. James. Count Magnus. By what means the papers out of which I have made a connected story came into my hands is the last point which the reader will learn from these pages. But it is necessary to prefix to my extracts from them a statement of the form in which I possess them. They consist, then, partly of a series of collections for a book of travels, such a volume as was a common product of the forties and fifties. Horace Marriott's Journal of a Residence in Jutland and the Danish Isles is a fair specimen of the class to which I allude. These books usually treated of some unknown district on the continent. They were illustrated with woodcuts or steel plates. 
They gave details of hotel accommodation and of means of communication, such as we now expect to find in any well-regulated guidebook, and they dealt largely in reported conversations with intelligent foreigners, racy innkeepers, and garrulous peasants. In a word, they were chatty. Begun with the idea of furnishing material for such a book, my papers, as they progressed, assumed the character of a record of one single personal experience, and this record was continued up to the very eve, almost, of its termination. The writer was a Mr. Raxall. For my knowledge of him, I have to depend entirely on the evidence his writings afford, and from these I deduce that he was a man past middle age, possessed of some private means, and very much alone in the world. He had, it seems, no settled abode in England, but was a denizen of hotels and boarding houses. It is probable that he entertained the idea of settling down at some future time, which never came, and I think it also likely that the Pantechnican fire in the early seventies must have destroyed a great deal that would have thrown light on his antecedents, for he refers once or twice to property of his that was warehoused at that establishment. It is further apparent that Mr. Raxall had published a book, and that it treated of a holiday he had once taken in Brittany. More than this I cannot say about his work, because a diligent search in bibliographical works has convinced me that it must have appeared either anonymously or under a pseudonym. As to his character, it is not difficult to form some superficial opinion. He must have been an intelligent and cultivated man. It seems that he was near being a fellow of his college at Oxford, Brazenose, as I judge from the calendar. His besetting fault was pretty clearly that of over-inquisitiveness, possibly a good fault in a traveller, certainly a fault for which this traveller paid dearly enough in the end. On what proved to be his last expedition, he was plotting another book, Scandinavia, a region not widely known to Englishmen forty years ago, had struck him as an interesting field. He must have alighted on some old books of Swedish history or memoirs, and the idea had struck him that there was room for a book descriptive of travel in Sweden, interspersed with episodes from the history of some of the great Swedish families. He procured letters of introduction, therefore, to some persons of quality in Sweden, and set out thither in the early summer of 1863. Of his travels in the north there is no need to speak, nor of his residence of some weeks in Stockholm. I need only mention that some savant resident there put him on the track of an important collection of family papers, belonging to the proprietors of an ancient manor house in Vestergotland, and obtained for him permission to examine them. The manor house, or Hergard, in question, is to be called R-A-B-A-E-C-K, pronounced something like Robeck, though that is not its name. It is one of the best buildings of its kind in all the country, and the picture of it in Dahlenberg's Suecia Antiqua et Moderna, engraved in 1694, shows it very much as the tourists may see it today. It was built soon after 1600, 
and is, roughly speaking, very much like an English house of that period, in respect of material, red brick, with stone facings, and style. The man who built it was a scion of the great house of de la Gardie, and his descendants possess it still. De la Gardie is the name by which I will designate them when mention of them becomes necessary. They received Mr. Raxall with great kindness and courtesy, and pressed him to stay in the house as long as his researches lasted. But preferring to be independent, and mistrusting his powers of conversing in Swedish, he settled himself at the village inn, which turned out quite sufficiently comfortable, at any rate during the summer months. This arrangement would entail a short walk daily to and from the manor house of something under a mile. The house itself stood in a park and was protected, we should say grown up, with large old timber. Near it you found the walled garden and then entered a close wood fringing one of the small lakes with which the whole country is pitted. Then came the wall of the demesne and you climbed a steep knoll, a knob of rock lightly covered with soil, and on the top of this stood the church, fenced in with tall, dark trees. It was a curious building to English eyes. The nave and aisles were low, and filled with pews and galleries. In the western gallery stood the handsome old organ, gaily painted and with silver pipes. The ceiling was flat, and and had been adorned by a 17th century artist with a strange and hideous last judgment, full of lurid flames, falling cities, burning ships, crying souls, and brown and smiling demons. Handsome brass coronae hung from the roof. The pulpit was like a doll's house, covered with little painted wooden cherubs and saints. A stand with three hourglasses was hinged to the preacher's desk. Such sights as these may be seen in many a church in Sweden now, but what distinguished this one was an addition to the original building. At the eastern end of the north aisle, the builder of the manor house had erected a mausoleum for himself and his family. It was a largish eight-sided building, lighted by a series of oval windows, and it had a domed roof topped by a kind of pumpkin-shaped object rising into a spire, a form in which Swedish architects greatly delighted. The roof was of copper externally, and was painted black, while the walls, in common with those of the church, were staringly white. To this mausoleum there was no access from the church. It had a portal and steps of its own on the northern side. Past the churchyard, the path to the village goes, and not more than three or four minutes bring you to the inn door. On the first day of his stay at Rabeck, Mr. Raxall found the church door open, and made these notes of the interior which I have epitomized. Into the mausoleum, however, he could not make his way. He could, by looking through the keyhole, just describe that there were fine marble effigies and sarcophagi of copper, and a wealth of armorial ornament which made him very anxious to spend some time in investigation. The papers he had come to examine at the manor house proved to be of just the kind he wanted for his book. There were family correspondence, journals, and account books of the earliest owners of the estate, very carefully kept and clearly written, 
full of amusing and picturesque detail. The first de la Gardie appeared in them as a strong and capable man. Shortly after the building of the mansion, there had been a period of distress in the district, and the peasants had risen and attacked several chateaux and done some damage. The owner of Rabeck took a leading part in suppressing trouble, and there was reference to executions of ringleaders and severe punishments inflicted with no sparing hand. The portrait of this Magnus de la Gardi was one of the best in the house, and Mr. Raxall studied it with no little interest after his day's work. He gives no detailed description of it, but I gather that the face impressed him rather by its power than by its beauty or goodness. In fact, he writes that Count Magnus was an almost phenomenally ugly man. On this day, Mr. Raxall took his supper with the family and walked back in the late but still bright evening. I must remember, he writes, to ask the sexton if he can let me into the mausoleum at the church. He evidently has access to it himself, for I saw him tonight standing on the steps, and, as I thought, locking or unlocking the door. I find that early on the following day, Mr. Raxall had some conversation with his landlord. His setting it down at such length as he does surprised me at first, but I soon realized that the papers I was reading were, at least in their beginning, the materials for the book he was meditating and that it was to have been one of those quasi-journalistic productions which admit of the introduction of an admixture of conversational matter. His object, he says, was to find out whether any traditions of Count Magnus de la Gardie lingered on in the scenes of that gentleman's activity, and whether the popular estimate of him were favourable or not. He found that the Count was decidedly not a favourite. If his tenants came late to their work on the days which they owed to him as lord of the manor, they were set on the wooden horse, or flogged and branded in the manor house yard. One or two cases there were of men who had occupied lands which encroached on the lord's domain, and whose houses had been mysteriously burnt on a winter's night, with the whole family inside. But what seemed to dwell on the innkeeper's mind most, for he returned to the subject more than once, was that the Count had been on the black pilgrimage, and had brought something or someone back with him. You will naturally inquire, as Mr. Raxall did, what the black pilgrimage may have been. But your curiosity on the point must remain unsatisfied for the time being, just as his did. The landlord was evidently unwilling to give a full answer, or indeed any answer on the point, and being called out for a moment, trotted out with obvious alacrity, only putting his head in at the door a few minutes afterwards to say that he was called away to Skara and should not be back till evening. So Mr. Raxall had to go unsatisfied to his day's work at the manor house. The papers on which he was just then engaged soon put his thoughts into another channel, for he had to occupy himself with glancing over the correspondence between Sophia Albertina in Stockholm and her married cousin Ulrika Leonora at Rabeck 
in the years 1705 to 1710. The letters were of exceptional interest from the light they threw upon the culture of that period in Sweden, as anyone can testify who has read the full edition of them in the publications of the Swedish Historical Manuscripts Commission. In the afternoon, he had done with these, and after returning the boxes in which they were kept to their places on the shelf, he proceeded, very naturally, to take down some of the volumes nearest to them, in order to determine which of them had best be his principal subject of investigation next day. The shelf he had hit upon was occupied mostly by a collection of account books in the writing of the first Count Magnus. But one among them was not an account book, but a book of alchemical and other tracts in another 16th century hand. Not being very familiar with alchemical literature, Mr. Raxall spends much space, which he might have spared, in setting out the names and beginnings of the various treatises. The Book of the Phoenix, Book of the Thirty Words, Book of the Toad, Book of Miriam, Turba Philosophorum, and so forth. And then he announces with a good deal of circumstance his delight at finding, on a leaf originally left blank near the middle of the book, some writing of Count Magnus himself, headed Liber Nigre Peregrinationis. It is true that only a few lines were written, but there was quite enough to show that the landlord had that morning been referring to a belief at least as old as the time of Count Magnus, and probably shared by him. This is the English of what was written. If any man desires to obtain a long life, if he would obtain a faithful messenger and see the blood of his enemies, it is necessary that he should first go into the city of Charazin and there salute the prince. Here there was an erasure of one word, not very thoroughly done, so that Mr. Raxall felt pretty sure that he was right in reading it as Aeris of the air, but there was no more of the text copied, only a line in Latin. Quaeri reliqua hujus materiae inter secretiora. That is, see the rest of this matter among the more private things. It could not be denied that this threw a rather lurid light upon the tastes and beliefs of the Count. But to Mr. Raxall, separated from him by nearly three centuries, the thought that he might have added to his general forcefulness alchemy, and to alchemy something like magic, only made him a more picturesque figure. And when, after a rather prolonged contemplation of his picture in the hall, Mr. Raxall set out on his homeward way, his mind was full of the thought of Count Magnus. He had no eyes for his surroundings, no perception of the evening scents of the woods, or the evening light on the lake. And when all of a sudden he pulled up short, he was astonished to find himself already at the gate of the churchyard, and within a few minutes of his dinner. His eyes fell on the mausoleum. Ah, he said, Count Magnus, there you are. I should dearly like to see you. Like many solitary men, he writes, I have a habit of talking to myself aloud, and, unlike some of the Greek and Latin particles, I do not expect an answer, 
Certainly, and perhaps fortunately in this case, there was neither voice nor any that regarded. Only the woman, who I suppose was cleaning up the church, dropped some metallic object on the floor, whose clang startled me. Count Magnus, I think, sleeps sound enough. That same evening, the landlord of the inn, who had heard Mr. Raxall say that he wished to see the clerk or deacon, as he would be called in Sweden, of the parish, introduced him to that official in the inn parlour. A visit to the de la Gardie tomb-house was soon arranged for the next day, and a little general conversation ensued. Mr. Raxall, remembering that one function of Scandinavian deacons is to teach candidates for confirmation, thought he would refresh his own memory on a biblical point. "'Can you tell me,' he said, "'anything about Chirazin?' The deacon seemed startled, but, but readily reminded him how that village had once been denounced. "'To be sure,' said Mr. Raxall. "'It is, I suppose, quite a ruin now.' "'So I expect,' replied the deacon. "'I have heard some of our old priests say that Antichrist is to be born there, and there are tales.' "'Ah, what tales are those?' Mr. Raxall put in. "'Tales, I was going to say, which I have forgotten, said the deacon, and soon after that he said good night. The landlord was now alone, and at Mr. Raxall's mercy, and that inquirer was not inclined to spare him. Herr Nielsen, he said, I have found out something about the black pilgrimage. You may as well tell me what you know. What did the Count bring back with him? Swedes are habitually slow, perhaps, in answering. Or perhaps the landlord was an exception. I'm not sure. But Mr. Raxall notes that the landlord spent at least one minute in looking at him before he said anything at all. Then he came close up to his guest, and with a good deal of effort he spoke. Mr. Raxall, I can tell you this one little tale, and no more. Not any more. You must not ask anything when I have done. In my grandfather's time, that is, ninety-two years ago, there were two men who said, The Count is dead. We do not care for him. We will go tonight and have a free hunt in his wood, the long wood on the hill that you have seen behind Robeck. Well, those that heard them say this, they said, No, do not go. We are sure you will meet with persons walking who should not be walking. They should be resting, not walking. These men laughed. There were no forestmen to keep the wood, because no one wished to live there. The family were not here at the house. These men could do what they wished. Very well. They go to the wood that night. My grandfather was sitting here in this room. It was the summer and a light night. With the window open, he could see out to the wood and hear. So he sat there, and two or three men with him, and they listened. At first, they hear nothing at all. Then they hear someone, you know how far away it is, they hear someone scream, just as if the most inside part of his soul was twisted out of him. All of them in the room caught hold of each other, and they sat so for three-quarters of an hour. Then they hear someone else, 
only about 300 ells off, they hear him laugh out loud. It was not one of those two men that laughed, and indeed they have all of them said that it was not any man at all. After that, they hear a great door shut. Then, when it was just light with the sun, they all went to the priest. They said to him, Father, put on your gown and your ruff, and come to bury these men, Anders Bjornsson and Hans Thorbjorn. You understand that they were sure that these men were dead. So they went to the wood. My grandfather never forgot this. He said they were all like so many dead men themselves. The priest, too, he was in a white fear. He said when they came to him, I heard one cry in the night, and I heard one laugh afterwards. If I cannot forget that, I shall not be able to sleep again. So they went to the wood, and they found these men on the edge of the wood. Hans Thorbjorn was standing with his back against a tree, and all the time he was pushing with his hands, pushing something away from him which was not there. So he was not dead, and they led him away, and took him to the house at Nikyoping. And he died before the winter, but he went on pushing with his hands. Also, Anders Bjornsson was there, but he was dead. And I tell you this about Anders Bjornsson, that he was once a beautiful man, but now his face was not there because the flesh of it was sucked away off the bones. You understand that? My grandfather did not forget that. And they laid him on the bier which they brought, and they put a cloth over his head, and the priest walked before, and they began to sing the psalm for the dead as well as they could. So as they were singing the end of the first verse, one fell down who was carrying the head of the bier, and the others looked back, and they saw that the cloth had fallen off, and the eyes of Anders Bjornsson were looking up, because there was nothing to close over them, and this they could not bear. Therefore the priest laid the cloth upon him, and sent for a spade, and they buried him in that place. The next day, Mr. Raxall records that the deacon called for him soon after his breakfast, and took him to the church and mausoleum. He noticed that the key of the latter was hung on a nail just by the pulpit, and it occurred to him that, as the church door seemed to be left unlocked as a rule, it would not be difficult for him to pay a second and more private visit to the monuments if there proved to be more of interest among them than could be digested at first. The building, when he entered it, he found not unimposing. The monuments, mostly large erections of the 17th and 18th centuries, were dignified if luxuriant, and the epitaphs and heraldry were copious. The central space of the domed room was occupied by three copper sarcophagi, covered with finely engraved ornament. Two of them had, as is commonly the case in Denmark and Sweden, a large metal crucifix on the lid. The third, that of Count Magnus, as it appeared, had instead of that a full-length effigy engraved upon it, 
and round the edge were several bands of similar ornament representing various scenes. One was a battle with cannon belching out smoke and walled towns and troops of pikemen. Another showed an execution. In a third, among trees, was a man running at full speed with flying hair and outstretched hands. After him followed a strange form. It would be hard to say whether the artist had intended it for a man and was unable to give the requisite similitude, or whether it was intentionally made as monstrous as it looked. In view of the skill with which the rest of the drawing was done, Mr. Raxall felt inclined to adopt the latter idea. The figure was unduly short and was for the most part muffled in a hooded garment which swept the ground. The only part of the form which projected from that shelter was not shaped like any hand or arm. Mr. Raxall compares it to the tentacle of a devil fish and continues, On seeing this I said to myself, this, then, which is evidently an allegorical representation of some kind, a fiend pursuing a hunted soul, may be the origin of the story of Count Magnus and his mysterious companion. Let us see how the huntsman is pictured. Doubtless it will be a demon blowing his horn. But, as it turned out, there was no such sensational figure, only the semblance of a cloaked man on a hillock, who stood leaning on a stick, and watching the hunt with an interest which the engraver had tried to express in his attitude. Mr. Raxall noted the finely worked and massive steel padlocks, three in number, which secured the sarcophagus. One of them, he saw, was detached and lay on the pavement, and then, unwilling to delay the deacon longer or to waste his own working time, he made his way onward to the manor house. It is curious, he notes, how on retracing a familiar path one's thoughts engross one to the absolute exclusion of surrounding objects. Tonight, for the second time, I had entirely failed to notice where I was going. I had planned a private visit to the tomb house to copy the epitaphs. When I suddenly, as it were, awoke to consciousness and found myself, as before, turning in at the churchyard gate and, uh, I believe, singing or chanting some such words as Are you awake, Count Magnus? Are you asleep, Count Magnus? And then, something more which I have failed to recollect. It seems to me that I must have been behaving in this nonsensical way for some time. He found the key of the mausoleum where he had expected to find it, and copied the greater part of what he wanted. In fact, he stayed until the light began to fail him. I must have been wrong, he writes, in saying that one of the padlocks of my Count's sarcophagus was unfastened. I see tonight that two are loose. I picked both up and laid them carefully on the window ledge, after trying unsuccessfully to close them. The remaining one is still firm, and though I take it to be a spring lock, I cannot guess how it is opened. Had I succeeded in undoing it, I'm almost afraid I should have taken the liberty of opening the sarcophagus. It is strange the interest I feel in the personality of this, I fear, somewhat ferocious and grim old noble. The day following was, as it turned out, the last of Mr. Raxall's stay at Roerbeck. He received letters connected with certain investments which made it desirable that he should return to England. 
His work among the papers was practically done, and travelling was slow. He decided, therefore, to make his farewells, put some finishing touches to his notes, and be off. These finishing touches and farewells, as it turned out, took more time than he had expected. The hospitable family insisted on his staying to dine with them. They dined at three, and it was verging on half-past six before he was outside the iron gates of Rabeck. He dwelt on every step of his walk by the lake, determined to saturate himself, now that he trod it for the last time, in the sentiment of the place and hour. And when he reached the summit of the churchyard knoll, he lingered for many minutes, gazing at the limitless prospect of woods, near and distant, all dark beneath a sky of liquid green. When at last he turned to go, the thought struck him that surely he must bid farewell to Count Magnus, as well as the rest of the de la Gardis. The church was but twenty yards away, and he knew where the key of the mausoleum hung. It was not long before he was standing over the great copper coffin, and as usual talking to himself aloud. You may have been a bit of a rascal in your time, Magnus, he was saying, but for all that I should like to see you, or rather... Just at that instant, he says, I felt a blow on my foot. Hastily enough I drew it back, and something fell on the pavement with a clash. It was the third, the last of the three padlocks, which had fastened the sarcophagus. I stooped to pick it up, and, heaven is my witness that I am writing only the bare truth, before I had raised myself, there was a sound of metal hinges creaking, and I distinctly saw the lid shifting upwards. I may have behaved like a coward, but I could not for my life stay for one moment. I was outside that dreadful building in less time than I can write, almost as quickly as I could have said, the words. And what frightens me yet more, I could not turn the key in the lock. As I sit here in my room noting these facts, I ask myself, it was not twenty minutes ago, whether that noise of creaking metal continued, and I cannot tell whether it did or not. I only know that there was something more than I have written that alarmed me, but whether it was sound or sight, I am not able to remember. What is this that I have done? Poor Mr. Raxall. He set out on his journey to England on the next day, as he had planned, and he reached England in safety. And yet, as I gather from his changed hand, and inconsequent jottings, a broken man. One of the several small notebooks that have come to me with his papers gives not a key to, but a kind of inkling of his experiences. Much of his journey was made by canal boat, and I find not less than six painful attempts to enumerate and describe his fellow passengers. The entries are of this kind. 24. Pastor of village in Skane, usual black coat and soft black hat. 25. Commercial traveller from Stockholm, going to Trollheiten. Black cloak, brown hat. 26. Man in long black cloak, broad-leafed hat, very old-fashioned. This entry is lined out, and a note adding, perhaps identical with number 13 have not yet seen his face. On referring to number 13, I find that he is a Roman priest in a cassock. 
The net result of the reckoning is always the same. 28 people appear in the enumeration, one being always a man in a long black cloak and broad hat, and another a short figure in dark cloak and hood. On the other hand, it is always noted that only 26 passengers appear at meals, and that the man in the cloak is perhaps absent, and the short figure is certainly absent. On reaching England, it appears that Mr. Raxall landed at Harwich, and that he resolved at once to put himself out of the reach of some person or persons whom he never specifies, but whom he had evidently come to regard as his pursuers. Accordingly, he took a vehicle, it was a closed fly, not trusting the railway, and drove across country to the village of Belchamp St. Paul. It was about nine o'clock on a moonlit August night when he neared the place. He was sitting forward and looking out of the window at the fields and thickets, there was little else to be seen, racing past him. Suddenly he came to a crossroad. At the corner, two figures were standing motionless. Both were in dark cloaks. The taller one wore a hat, the shorter a hood. He had no time to see their faces nor did they make any motion that he could discern. Yet the horse shied violently and broke into a gallop, and Mr. Raxall sank back into his seat in something like desperation. He had seen them before. Arrived at Belchamp St. Paul, he was fortunate enough to find a decent furnished lodging, and for the next twenty-four hours he lived, comparatively speaking, in peace. His last notes were written on this day, they are too disjointed and ejaculatory to be given here in full, but the substance of them is clear enough. He is expecting a visit from his pursuers. How or when, he knows not, and his constant cry is, What has he done? And, Is there no hope? Doctors, he knows, would call him mad. Policemen would laugh at him. The parson is away. What can he do but lock his door and cry to God? People still remember last year at Belchamp St. Paul how a strange gentleman came one evening in August, years back, and how the next morning but one he was found dead, and there was an inquest, and the jury that viewed the body fainted, seven of them did, and none of them wouldn't speak to what they see, and the verdict was visitation of God, and how the people as kept the house moved out that same week and went away from that part. But they do not, I think, know that any glimmer of light has ever been thrown, or could be thrown, on the mystery. It so happened that last year the little house came into my hands as part of a legacy. It had stood empty since 1863, and there seemed no prospect of letting it, so I had it pulled down, and the papers of which I have given you an abstract were found in a forgotten cupboard under the window in the best bedroom. The End of Count Magnus from Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by M. R. James O oh, whistle, and I'll come to you, my lad. I suppose you'll be getting away pretty soon now full term is over, Professor? said a person, not in the story. 
to the professor of ontography soon after they had sat down next to each other at a feast in the hospitable hall of St. James's College. The professor was young, neat, and precise in speech. Yes, he said, my friends have been making me take up golf this term, and I mean to go to the East Coast. In point of fact, to Burnstow, I dare say you know it, for a week or ten days to improve my game. I hope to get off tomorrow. Oh, Parkins, said his neighbour on the other side, if you're going to Burnstow, I wish you would look at the site of the Templar's Preceptory, and let me know if you think it would be any good to have a dig there in the summer. It was, as you might suppose, a person of antiquarian pursuits who said this, but since he merely appears in this prologue, there is no need to give his entitlements. Certainly, said Parkins, the professor. If you'll describe to me whereabouts the site is, I'll do my best to give you an idea of the lie of the land when I get back, or I could write to you about it if you would tell me where you're likely to be. Don't trouble to do that, thanks. It's only that I'm thinking of taking my family in that direction in the long, and it occurred to me that, as very few of the English preceptors have ever been properly planned, I might have an opportunity of doing something useful on off days. The professor rather sniffed at the idea that planning out a preceptory could be described as useful. His neighbour continued, The site, I doubt if there's anything showing above ground, must be down quite close to the beach now. The sea has encroached tremendously, as you know, all along that bit of coast. I should think, from the map, that it must be about three-quarters of a mile from the Globe Inn, at the north end of town. Where are you going to stay? Well, at the Globe Inn, as a matter of fact, said Parkins. I have engaged a room there. I couldn't get in anywhere else. Most of the lodging houses are shut up in winter, it seems. And as it is, they tell me that the only room of any size I can have is really a double-bedded one, and that they haven't a corner in which to store the other bed, and so on. But I must have a fairly large room, for I am taking some books down, and mean to do a bit of work. And though I don't quite fancy having an empty bed, not to speak of two, in what I may call for the time being my study, I suppose I can manage to rough it for the short time I shall be there. Do you call having an extra bed in your room roughing it, Parkins? said a bluff person opposite. Look here, I shall come down and occupy it for a bit. It'll be company for you. The professor quivered, but managed to laugh in a courteous manner. By all means, Rogers, there's nothing I should like better, but I'm afraid you would find it rather dull. You don't play golf, do you? No, thank heaven, said rude Mr. Rogers. Well, you see, when I'm not writing, I shall most likely be out on the links, and that, as I say, would be rather dull for you, I'm afraid. Oh, I don't know. There's certainly somebody I know in the place. But of course, if you don't want me, speak the word, Parkins. I shan't be offended. Truth, as you always tell us, is never offensive. Parkins was indeed scrupulously polite and strictly truthful. It is to be feared that Mr. Rogers sometimes practised upon his knowledge of these characteristics. In Parkins's breast there was a conflict now raging, which for a moment or two did not allow him to answer. That interval being over, he said, Well, if you want the exact truth, Rogers, I was considering whether the room I speak of 
would really be large enough to accommodate us both comfortably. And also whether, mind you, I shouldn't have said this if you hadn't pressed me, you would not constitute something in the nature of a hindrance to my work. Rogers laughed loudly. Well done, Parkins, he said. It's all right. I promise not to interrupt your work. Don't you disturb yourself about that. No, I won't come if you don't want me. But I thought I should do so nicely to keep the ghosts off. Here he might have been seen to wink and to nudge his next neighbour. Parkins might also have been seen to become pink. I beg pardon, Parkins, Rogers continued. I oughtn't to have said that. I forgot you didn't like levity on these topics. Well, Parkins said, as you have mentioned the matter, I freely own that I do not like careless talk about what you call ghosts. A man in my position, he went on, raising his voice a little, cannot, I find, be too careful about appearing to sanction the current beliefs on such subjects. As you know, Rogers, or as you ought to know, for I think I have never concealed my views. No, you certainly have not, old man, put in Rogers sotto voce. I hold that any semblance, any appearance of concession to the view that such things might exist is equivalent to a renunciation of all that I hold most sacred, but I'm afraid I have not succeeded in securing your attention. Your undivided attention was what Dr. Blimber actually said, Rogers interrupted with every appearance of an earnest desire for accuracy. Footnote. Mr. Rogers was wrong. Vide Dombey and Son, Chapter 12 returned text. But I beg your pardon, Perkins, I'm stopping you. No, not at all, said Parkins. I don't remember Blimber. Perhaps he was before my time. But I needn't go on. I'm sure you know what I mean. Yes, yes, said Rogers, rather hastily. Just so. We'll go into it fully at Burnstow or, or somewhere. In repeating the above dialogue, I have tried to give the impression which it made on me that Parkins was something of an old woman, rather hen-like, perhaps, in his little ways, totally destitute, alas, of the sense of humour, but at the same time dauntless and sincere in his convictions, and a man deserving of the greatest respect. Whether or not the reader has gathered so much, that was the character which Parkins had. On the following day, Parkins did, as he had hoped, succeed in getting away from his college and in arriving at Burnstow. He was made welcome at the Globe Inn, was safely installed in the large double-bedded room of which we have heard, and was able before retiring to rest, to arrange his materials for work in apple pie order upon a commodious table which occupied the outer end of the room and was surrounded on three sides by windows looking out seaward. That is to say, the central window looked straight out to sea, and those on the left and right commanded prospects along the coast to the north and south, respectively. On the south, you saw the village of Burnstow. On the north, no houses were to be seen, but only the beach and the low cliff backing it. Immediately in front was a strip not considerable of rough grass, dotted with old anchors, capstans and so forth then a broad path, then the beach. Whatever may have been the original distance between the globe in and the sea, not more than sixty yards now separated them. 
the rest of the population of the inn was, of course, a golfing one, and included few elements that call for a special description. The most conspicuous figure was perhaps that of an ancien militaire, secretary of a London club, and possessed of a voice of incredible strength, and of views of a pronouncedly Protestant type. These were apt to find utterance after his attendance upon the ministrations of the vicar, an estimable man with inclinations towards a picturesque ritual, which he gallantly kept down, as far as he could, out of deference to East Anglian tradition. Professor Parkins, one of whose principal characteristics was pluck, spent the greater part of the day following his arrival at Burnstow in what he had called improving his game, in company with this Colonel Wilson. And during the afternoon, whether the process of improvement were to blame or not, I'm not sure, the Colonel's demeanour assumed a colouring so lurid that even Parkins jibbed at the thought of walking home with him from the links. He determined after a short and furtive look at that bristling moustache and those incarnadine features that it would be wiser to allow the influences of tea and tobacco to do what they could with the Colonel before the dinner hour should render a meeting inevitable. I might walk home tonight along the beach, he reflected. Yes, and take a look, there will be light enough for that, at the ruins of which Disney was talking. I don't exactly know where they are, by the way, but I expect I can hardly help stumbling on them. This he accomplished, I may say, in the most literal sense, for in picking his way from the links to the shingle beach, his foot caught, partly in a gorse root, and partly in a biggish stone, and over he went. When he got up and surveyed his surroundings, he found himself in a patch of somewhat broken ground, covered with small depressions and mounds. These latter, when he came to examine them, proved to be simply masses of flints embedded in mortar and grown over with turf. He must, he quite rightly concluded, be on the site of the preceptory he had promised to look at. It seemed not unlikely to reward the spade of the explorer. Enough of the foundations was probably left at no great depth to throw a good deal of light on the general plan. He remembered vaguely that the Templars, to whom this site had belonged, were in the habit of building round churches, and he thought a particular series of the humps or mounds near him did appear to be arranged in something of a circular form. Few people can resist the temptation to try a little amateur research in a department quite outside their own, if only for the satisfaction of showing how successful they would have been had they only taken it up seriously. Our professor, however, if he felt something of this mean desire, was also truly anxious to oblige Mr. Disney, so he paced with care the circular area he had noticed, and wrote down its rough dimensions in his pocket book. Then he proceeded to examine an oblong eminence which lay east of the centre of the circle, and seemed, to his thinking, likely to be the base of a platform or altar. At one end of it, the northern, a patch of the turf was gone, removed by some boy or other creature, ferre naturae. It might, he thought, be as well to probe the soil here for evidences of masonry, and he took out his knife and began scraping away the earth. 
and now followed another little discovery. A portion of soil fell inward as he scraped and disclosed a small cavity. He lighted one match after another to help him to see of what nature the hole was, but the wind was too strong for them all. By tapping and scratching the sides with his knife, however, he was able to make out that it must be an artificial hole in masonry. It was rectangular, and the sides, top and bottom, if not actually plastered, were smooth and regular. Of course it was empty. No, as he withdrew the knife he heard a metallic clink, and when he introduced his hand, it met with a cylindrical object lying on the floor of the hole. Naturally enough, he picked it up, and when he brought it into the light, now fast fading, he could see that it too was of man's making. A metal tube, about four inches long, and evidently of some considerable age. By the time Parkins had made sure that there was nothing else in this odd receptacle, it was too late and too dark for him to think of undertaking any further search. What he had done had proved so unexpectedly interesting that he determined to sacrifice a little more of the daylight on the morrow to archaeology. The object which he now had safe in his pocket was bound to be of some slight value at least, he felt sure. Bleak and solemn was the view on which he took a last look before starting homeward. A faint yellow light in the west showed the links on which a few figures moving towards the clubhouse were still visible the squat Martello Tower, the lights of Aldsey village, the pale ribbon of sands, intersected at intervals by black wooden groinings, the dim and murmuring sea. The wind was bitter from the north, but was at his back when he set out for the globe. He quickly rattled and clashed through the shingle and gained the sand, upon which, but for the groinings which had to be got over every few yards, the going was both good and quiet. One last look behind, to measure the distance he had made since leaving the ruined Templars church, showed him a prospect of company on his walk, in the shape of a rather indistinct personage who seemed to be making great efforts to catch up with him, but made little if any progress. I mean, that there was an appearance of running about his movements, but that the distance between him and Parkins did not seem materially to lessen. So at least Parkins thought, and decided that he almost certainly did not know him, and that it would be absurd to wait until he came up. For all that, company, he began to think, would really be very welcome on that lonely shore, if only you could choose your companion. In his unenlightened days, he had read of meetings in such places which even now would hardly bear thinking of. He went on thinking of them, however, until he reached home and particularly of one which catches most people's fancy at some time of their childhood. Now I saw in my dream that Christian had gone but a very little way when he saw a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. What should I do now, he thought, if I looked back and caught sight of a black figure sharply defined against the yellow sky and saw that it had horns and wings? I wonder whether I should stand or run for it. Luckily, the gentleman behind is not of that kind, and he seems to be about as far off now as when I saw him first. Well, at this rate, he won't get his dinner as soon as I shall. And, 
Oh dear me, it's within a quarter of an hour of the time now. I must run. Parkins had in fact very little time for dressing. When he met the Colonel at dinner, peace, or as much of her as that gentleman could manage, reigned once more in the military bosom. Nor was she put to flight in the hours of bridge that followed dinner, for Parkins was a more than respectable player. When, therefore, he retired towards twelve o'clock, he felt that he had spent his evening in quite a satisfactory way, and that, even for so long as a fortnight or three weeks, life at the globe would be supportable under similar conditions. Especially, thought he, if I go on improving my game. As he went along the passages, he met the boots of the globe, who stopped and said, Beg your pardon, sir, but as I was a-brushing your coat just now, there was something fell out of the pocket. I put it on your chest of drawers, sir, in your room, sir. A piece of a pipe or something of that, sir. Thank you, sir. You'll find it on your chest of drawers, sir. Yes, sir. Good night, sir. The speech served to remind Parkins of his little discovery of that afternoon. It was with some considerable curiosity that he turned it over by the light of his candles. It was of bronze, he now saw, and was shaped very much after the manner of the modern dog whistle. In fact, it was. Yes, certainly it was. Actually, no more nor less than a whistle. He put it to his lips, but it was quite full of a fine caked-up sand or earth, which would not yield to knocking, but must be loosened with a knife. Tidy as ever in his habits, Parkins cleared out the earth onto a piece of paper, and took the latter to the window to empty it out. The night was clear and bright, as he saw when he had opened the casement, and he stopped for an instant to look at the sea, and note and note a belated wanderer stationed on the shore in front of the inn. Then he shut the window, a little surprised at the late hours people kept at Burnstow, and took his whistle to the light again. Why, surely there were marks on it, and not merely marks, but letters. A very little rubbing rendered the deeply cut inscription quite legible, but the professor had to confess, after some earnest thought, that the meaning of it was as obscure to him as the writing on the wall to Belshazzar. There were legends both on the front and on the back of the whistle. The one read thus, Reader's Note. There were four groups of three letters in a diamond pattern. To the left, F-U-R, then one above the other, F-L-A and F-L-E, and to the right, B-I-S, end of reader's note. The other, quiz est iste qui venet. I ought to be able to make it out, he thought, but I suppose I am a little rusty in my Latin. When I come to think of it, I don't believe I even know the word for a whistle. The long one does seem simple enough. It ought to mean, who is this who is coming? Well, the best way to find out is evidently to whistle for him. He blew tentatively, and stopped suddenly, startled and yet pleased at the note he had elicited. It had a quality of infinite distance in it, and soft as it was, he somehow felt it must be audible for miles round. It was a sound, too, that seemed 
to have the power, which many scents possess, of forming pictures in the brain. He saw quite clearly for a moment a vision of a wide, dark expanse at night, with a fresh wind blowing, and in the midst a lonely figure. How employed he could not tell, perhaps he would have seen more, had not the picture been broken by the sudden surge of a gust of wind against his casement, so sudden that it made him look up, just in time to see the white glint of a seabird's wing, somewhere outside the dark panes. The sound of the whistle had so fascinated him that he could not help trying it once more, this time more boldly. The note was little, if at all, louder than before, and repetition broke the illusion. No picture followed, as he had half hoped it might. But what is this? Goodness, what force the wind can get up in a few minutes. What a tremendous gust. There, I knew that window fastening was no use. Ah, I thought so. Both candles out. It is enough to tear the room to pieces. The first thing was to get the window shut. While you might count twenty, Perkins was struggling with the small casement and felt almost as if he were pushing back a sturdy burglar, so strong was the pressure. It slackened all at once, and the window banged to and latched itself. Now to relight the candles and see what damage, if any, had been done. No, nothing seemed amiss. No glass even was broken in the casement. But the noise had evidently roused at least one member of the household. The colonel was to be heard stumping in his stockinged feet on the floor above and growling. Quickly as it had risen, the wind did not fall at once. On it went, moaning and rushing past the house, at times rising to a cry so desolate that, as Parkins disinterestedly said, it might have made fanciful people feel quite uncomfortable. Even the unimaginative, he thought, after a quarter of an hour, might be happier without it. Whether it was the wind, or the excitement of golf, or the researches in the preceptory that kept Parkins awake, he was not sure. Awake he remained, in any case, long enough to fancy, as I am afraid I often do myself under such conditions, that he was the victim of all manner of fatal disorders. He would lie counting the beats of his heart, convinced that it was going to stop work every moment and would entertain grave suspicions of his lungs, brain, liver, etc. Suspicions which he was sure would be dispelled by the return of daylight, but which, until then, refused to be put aside. He found a little vicarious comfort in the idea that someone else was in the same boat. A near neighbour, in the darkness it was not easy to tell his direction, was tossing and rustling in his bed, too. The next stage was that Parkins shut his eyes, and determined to give sleep every chance. Here again, over-excitement asserted itself in another form, that of making pictures. Experto crede, pictures do come to the closed eyes of one trying to sleep, and are often so little to his taste that he must open his eyes and disperse them. Parkins's experience on this occasion was a very distressing one. He found that the picture which presented itself to him was continuous. When he opened his eyes, of course, it went, 
but when he shut them once more, it framed itself afresh, and acted itself out again, neither quicker nor slower than before. What he saw was this, a long stretch of shore, shingle-edged by sand, and intersected at short intervals with black groins running down to the water. A scene, in fact, so like that of his afternoon's walk, that, in the absence of any landmark, it could not be distinguished therefrom. The light was obscure, conveying an impression of gathering storm, late winter evening, and slight cold rain. On this bleak stage, at first no actor was visible. Then, in the distance, a bobbing black object appeared. A moment more and it was a man, running, jumping, clambering over the groins, and every few seconds looking eagerly back. The nearer he came, the more obvious it was that he was not only anxious, but even terribly frightened, though his face was not to be distinguished. He was, moreover, almost at the end of his strength. On he came. Each successive obstacle seemed to cause him more difficulty than the last. Will he get over this next one? thought Parkins. It seems a little higher than the others. Yes, half climbing, half throwing himself, he did get over and fell all in a heap on the other side, the side nearest to the spectator. There, as if really unable to get up again, he remained crouching under the groin, looking up in an attitude of painful anxiety. So far, no cause whatever for the fear of the runner had been shown, but now there began to be seen far up the shore a little flicker of something light-coloured, moving to and fro with great swiftness and irregularity. Rapidly growing larger, it too declared itself as a figure in pale, fluttering draperies, ill-defined. There was something about its motion which made Parkins very unwilling to see it at close quarters. It would stop, raise arms, bow itself towards the sand, then run, stooping across the beach to the water edge and back again, and then, rising upright, once more continue its course forward, at a speed that was startling and terrifying. The moment came when the pursuer was hovering about from left to right only a few yards beyond the groin where the runner lay in hiding. After two or three ineffectual castings hither and thither, it came to a stop, stood upright with arms raised high, and then darted straight forward towards the groin. It was at this point that Parkins always failed in his resolution to keep his eyes shut. With many misgivings as to incipient failure of eyesight, overworked brain, excessive smoking and so on, he finally resigned himself to light his candle, get out a book, and pass the night, waking rather than be tormented by this persistent panorama, which he saw clearly enough could only be a morbid reflection of his walk and his thoughts on that very day. The scraping of match on box and the glare of light must have startled some creatures of the night, rats or what not, which he heard scurry across the floor from the side of his bed with much rustling. Dear, dear, the match is out. Fool that it is. But the second one burnt better, and a candle and book were duly procured, over which Parkins poured till sleep of a wholesome kind came upon him, and that in no long space. For about the first time in his orderly and prudent life, 
he forgot to blow out the candle, and when he was called next morning at eight, there was still a flicker in the socket and a sad mess of guttered grease on the top of the little table. After breakfast, he was in his room, putting on the finishing touches to his golfing costume. Fortune had again allotted the colonel to him for a partner, when one of the maids came in. Oh, if you please, she said, would you like any extra blankets on your bed, sir? Ah, thank you, said Parkins. Yes, I think I should like one. It seems likely to turn rather colder. In a very short time, the maid was back with the blanket. Which bed should I put it on, sir? she asked. What? Why, that one, the one I slept in last night, he said, pointing to it. Oh, yes, I beg your pardon, sir, but you seem to have tried both of them. Leastways, we had to make them both up this morning. Really? How very absurd, said Parkins. I certainly never touched the other, except to lay some things on it. Did it actually seem to have been slept in? Oh, yes, sir, said the maid. Why, all the things was crumpled and thrown about always, if you'll excuse me, sir. Quite as if anyone hadn't passed but a very poor night, sir. Dear me, said Parkins. Well, I may have disordered it more than I thought when I unpacked my things. I'm very sorry to have given you the extra trouble, I'm sure. I expect a friend of mine soon, by the way, a gentleman from Cambridge, to come and occupy it for a night or two. That'll be all right, I suppose, won't it? Oh, yes, to be sure, sir. Thank you, sir. It's no trouble, I'm sure, said the maid, and departed to giggle with her colleagues. Parkins set forth with a stern determination to improve his game. I am glad to be able to report that he succeeded so far in this enterprise that the colonel, who had been rather repining at the prospect of a second day's play in his company, became quite chatty as the morning advanced, and his voice boomed out over the flats, as certain also of our own minor poets have said, like some great bourdon in a minster tower. Extraordinary wind that we had last night, he said. In my old home we should have said someone had been whistling for it. Should you indeed, said Perkins. Is there a superstition of that kind still current in your part of the country? I don't know about superstition, said the Colonel. They believe in it, all over Denmark and Norway, as well as on the Yorkshire coast. And my experience is, mind you, that there's generally something at the bottom of what these country folk hold to, and have held to for generations. But it's your drive, or whatever it might have been. The golfing reader will have to imagine appropriate digressions at the proper intervals. When conversation was resumed, Parkins said with a slight hesitancy, Apropos of what you were saying just now, Colonel, I think I ought to tell you that my own views on such subjects are very strong. I am, in fact, a convinced disbeliever in what is called the supernatural. What? said the Colonel. Do you mean to tell me you don't believe in second sight? Or ghosts? Or anything of that kind? In nothing whatever of that kind, returned Parkins firmly. Well said the Colonel, but it appears to me at that rate, sir, that you must be little better than a Sadducee. Parkins was on the point of answering that, in his opinion, the Sadducees were the most sensible persons he had ever read of in the Old Testament. But, feeling some doubt as to whether much mention of them was to be found in that work, he preferred to laugh the accusation off. Perhaps I am, he said, but here, give me my clique, boy. 
Excuse me one moment, Colonel. A short interval. Now, as to whistling for the wind, let me give you my theory about it. The laws which govern winds are really not at all perfectly known. To fisher folk and such, of course, not known at all. A man or woman of eccentric habits, perhaps, or a stranger, is seen repeatedly on the beach at some unusual hour and is heard whistling. Soon afterwards, a violent wind rises. A man who could read the sky perfectly or who possessed a barometer could have foretold that it would. The simple people of a fishing village have no barometers and only a few rough rules for prophesying weather. What more natural than that the eccentric personage I postulated should be regarded as having raised the wind, or that he or she should clutch eagerly at the reputation of being able to do so? Now, take last night's wind. As it happens, I myself was whistling. I blew a whistle twice, and the wind seemed to come absolutely in answer to my call. If anyone had seen me... The audience had been a little restive under this harangue, and Parkins had, I fear, fallen somewhat into the tone of a lecturer. But at the last sentence, the colonel stopped. Whistling, were you? He said. And what sort of whistle did you use? Play this stroke first. Interval. About that whistle you were asking, Colonel, it's rather a curious one. I have it in my... No, I see I've left it in my room. As a matter of fact, I found it yesterday. And then Parkins narrated the manner of his discovery of the whistle. Upon hearing which, the Colonel grunted and opined that in Parkins's place he should himself be careful about using a thing that had belonged to a set of papists, of whom, speaking generally, it might be affirmed that you never knew what they might not have been up to. From this topic he diverged to the enormities of the vicar, who had given notice on the previous Sunday that Friday would be the feast of St. Thomas the Apostle, and that there would be service at eleven o'clock in the church. This and other similar proceedings constituted in the Colonel's view a strong presumption that the vicar was a concealed papist, if not a Jesuit. And Parkins, who could not very readily follow the Colonel in this region, did not disagree with him. In fact, they got on so well together in the morning that there was not talk on either side of their separating after lunch. Both continued to play well during the afternoon, or at least well enough to make them forget everything else, until the lights began to fail them. Not until then did Parkins remember that he had meant to do some more investigating at the preceptory, but it was of no great importance, he reflected. One day was as good as another. He might as well go home with the Colonel. As they turned the corner of the house, the Colonel was almost knocked down by a boy who rushed into him at the very top of his speed, and then, instead of running away, remained hanging on to him and panting. The first words of the warrior were naturally those of reproof and objurgation, but he very quickly discerned that the boy was almost speechless with fright. Inquiries were useless at first. When the boy got his breath, he began to howl and still clung to the colonel's legs. He was at last detached, but continued to howl. What in the world is the matter with you? What have you been up to? What have you seen? said the two men. Ow! Oh, I've seen it wive at me at the window, wailed the boy, and I don't like it. What window? said the irritated colonel. Come pull yourself together, my boy. The front window it was, at the hotel, said the boy. 
At this point, Parkins was in favour of sending the boy home. But the Colonel refused. He wanted to get to the bottom of it, he said. It was most dangerous to give a boy such a fright as this one had had, and if it turned out that people had been playing jokes, they should suffer for it in some way. And by a series of questions, he made out this story. The boy had been playing about on the grass in front of the globe with some others. Then they had gone home to their teas, and he was just going, when he happened to look up at the front window and see it awiving at him. It seemed to be a figure of some sort, in white as far as he knew. Couldn't see its face, but it wived at him, and it wasn't a right thing. Not to say a right person. Was there a light in the room? No, he didn't think to look if there was a light. Which was the window? Was it the top one or the second one? The second one it was. The big window what got two little ends at the sides. Very well, my boy, said the Colonel after a few more questions. You run away home now. I expect it was some person trying to give you a start. Another time, like a brave English boy, you just throw a stone. Well, no, not that exactly. But you go and speak to the waiter or to Mr. Simpson, the landlord. And yes, uh, and say that I advised you to do so. The boy's face expressed some of the doubt he felt as to the likelihood of Mr. Simpson's lending a favourable ear to his complaint. But the Colonel did not appear to perceive this, and went on, And here's a sixpence. No, I see it's a shilling. And you be off home, and don't think any more about it. The youth hurried off with agitated thanks, and the Colonel and Parkins went round to the front of the globe and reconnoitred. There was only one window answering to the description they had been hearing. Well, that's curious, said Parkins. It's evidently my window the lad was talking about. Will you come up for a moment, Colonel Wilson? We ought to be able to see if anyone has been taking liberties in my room. They were soon in the passage, and Parkins made as if to open the door. Then he stopped and felt in his pockets. This is more serious than I thought, was his next remark. I remember now that before I started this morning I locked the door. It is locked now. And what is more, here is the key. And he held it up. Now, he went on, if the servants are in the habit of going into one's room during the day when one is away, I can only say, well, well, that I don't approve of it at all. Conscious of a somewhat weak climax, he busied himself in opening the door, which was indeed locked, and in lighting candles. No, he said, nothing seems disturbed. Except your bed, put in the Colonel. Excuse me, that isn't my bed, said Parkins. I don't use that one but it does look as if someone had been playing tricks with it. It certainly did. The clothes were bundled up and twisted together in a most tortuous confusion. Parkins pondered. That must be it, he said at last. I disordered the clothes last night in unpacking, and they haven't made it since. Perhaps they came in to make it, and that boy saw them through the window, and then they were called away and locked the door after them. Yes, I think that must be it. Well, ring and ask, said the Colonel and this appealed to Parkins as practical. The maid appeared, and, to make a long story short, deposed that she had made the bed in the morning when the gentleman was in the room, and hadn't been there since. No, she hadn't no other key. Mr. Simpson, he kept the keys. He'd be able to tell the gentleman if anything had been up. This was a puzzle. Investigation showed that nothing of value had been taken, 
and Parkins remembered the disposition of the small objects on tables and so forth well enough to be pretty sure that no pranks had been played with them. Mr. and Mrs. Simpson furthermore agreed that neither of them had given the duplicate key of the room to any person whatever during the day. Nor could Parkins, fair-minded man as he was, detect anything in the demeanour of master, mistress or maid that indicated guilt. He was much more inclined to think that the boy had been imposing on the colonel. The latter was unwontedly silent and pensive at dinner, and throughout the evening, when he bade good night to Parkins, he murmured in a gruff undertone, You know where I am if you want me during the night? Why, yes, thank you, Colonel Wilson. I think I do. But there isn't much prospect of my disturbing you, I hope. By the way, he added, did I show you that old whistle I spoke of? I think not. Well, here it is. The Colonel turned it over gingerly in the light of the candle. Can you make anything of the inscription? asked Parkins, as he took it back. No, not in this light. What do you mean to do with it? Oh, well, when I get back to Cambridge I shall submit it to some of the archaeologists there and see what they think of it, and very likely if they consider it worth having I may present it to one of the museums. Hmm, said the Colonel. Well, you may be right. All I know is that if it were mine I should chuck it straight into the sea. It's no use talking, I'm well aware. But I expect that with you it's a case of live and learn. I hope so, I'm sure and I wish you a good night. He turned away, leaving Parkins in act to speak at the bottom of the stair, and soon each was in his own bedroom. By some unfortunate accident, there were neither blinds nor curtains to the windows of the professor's room. The previous night, he had thought little of this, but tonight there seemed every prospect of a bright moon rising to shine directly on his bed, and probably wake him later on. When he noticed this, he was a good deal annoyed, but with an ingenuity which I can only envy, he succeeded in rigging up, with the help of a railway rug, some safety pins and a stick and umbrella, a screen which, if it only held together, would completely keep the moonlight off his bed. And shortly afterwards he was comfortably in that bed. When he had read a somewhat solid work, long enough to produce a decided wish to sleep, he cast a drowsy glance round the room blew out the candle, and fell back upon the pillow. He must have slept soundly for an hour or more, when a sudden clatter shook him up, in a most unwelcome manner. In a moment he realised what had happened. His carefully constructed screen had given way, and a very bright frosty moon was shining directly on his face. This was highly annoying. Could he possibly get up and reconstruct the screen? Or could he manage to sleep if he did not? For some minutes he lay and pondered over all the possibilities. Then he turned over sharply, and with his eyes open, lay breathlessly listening. There had been a movement, he was sure, in the empty bed on the opposite side of the room. Tomorrow he would have it moved, for there must be rats or something playing about in it. It was quiet now. No. The commotion began again. There was a rustling and shaking, surely more than any rat could cause. I can figure to myself something of the professor's bewilderment and horror, for I have in a dream thirty years back seen the same thing happen. But the reader will hardly perhaps imagine how dreadful it was to him to see a figure suddenly sit up in what he had known was an empty bed. 
He was out of his own bed in one bound, and made a dash towards the window where lay his only weapon, the stick with which he had propped his screen. This was, as it turned out, the worst thing he could have done, because the personage in the empty bed, with a sudden smooth motion, slipped from the bed and took up a position with outspread arms between the two beds and in front of the door. Parkins watched it in a horrid perplexity. Somehow the idea of getting past it and escaping through the door was intolerable to him. He could not have borne, he didn't know why, to touch it. And as for its touching him, he would sooner dash himself through the window than have that happen. It stood for the moment in a band of dark shadow, and he had not seen what its face was like. Now it began to move in a stooping posture. And all at once the spectator realized with some horror and some relief that it must be blind, for it seemed to feel about it with its muffled arms in a groping and random fashion. Turning half away from him, it became suddenly conscious of the bed he had just left, and started towards it, and bent and felt over the pillows in a way which made Parkins shudder as he had never in his life thought it possible. In a very few moments it seemed to know that the bed was empty, and then, moving forward into the area of light and facing the window, it showed for the first time what manner of thing it was. Parkins, who very much dislikes being questioned about it, did once describe something of it in my hearing, and I gathered that what he chiefly remembers about it is a horrible, an intensely horrible face of crumpled linen what expression he read upon it, he could not or would not tell, but that the fear of it went nigh to maddening him is certain. But he was not at leisure to watch it for long. With formidable quickness it moved into the middle of the room, and as it groped and waved, one corner of its draperies swept across Parkins's face. He could not, though he knew how perilous the sound was, he could not keep back a cry of disgust and this gave the searcher an instant clue. It leapt towards him upon the instant, and the next moment he was halfway through the window backwards, uttering cry upon cry at the utmost pitch of his voice, and the linen face was thrust close into his own. At this, almost the last possible second, deliverance came, as you will have guessed. The colonel burst the door open, and was just in time to see the dreadful group at the window. When he reached the figures, only one was left. Parkins sank forward into the room in a faint, and before him, on the floor, lay a tumbled heap of bedclothes. Colonel Wilson asked no questions, but busied himself in keeping everyone else out of the room, and in getting Parkins back to his bed, and himself, wrapped in a rug, occupied the other bed for the rest of the night. Early on the next day, Rogers arrived, more welcome than he would have been a day before and the three of them held a very long consultation in the professor's room. At the end of it, the colonel left the hotel door, carrying a small object between his finger and thumb, which he cast as far into the sea as a very brawny arm could send it. Later on, the smoke of a burning ascended from the back premises of the globe. Exactly what explanation was patched up for the staff and visitors at the hotel I must confess I do not recollect. The professor was somehow cleared of the ready suspicion of delirium treatments, and the hotel 
of the reputation of a troubled house. There is not much question as to what would have happened to Parkins if the Colonel had not intervened when he did. He would either have fallen out of the window or else lost his wits. But it is not so evident what more the creature that came in answer to the whistle could have done than frighten. There seemed to be absolutely nothing material about it save the bedclothes of which it had made itself a body. The Colonel, who remembered a not very dissimilar occurrence in India, was of the opinion that if Parkins had closed with it, it could really have done very little, and that its one power was that of frightening. The whole thing, he said, served to confirm his opinion of the Church of Rome. There is really nothing more to tell, but as you may imagine, the Professor's views on certain points are less clear-cut than they used to be. His nerves, too, have suffered. He cannot, even now, see a surplice hanging on a door quite unmoved, and the spectacle of a scarecrow in a field late on a winter afternoon has cost him more than one sleepless night. The end of Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad from Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by M. R. James The Treasure of Abbot Thomas Chapter 1 Verum usque in presentem diem multigariunt interesse canonici de abscondito quodam istius abatis tome thesoro quem saepe quanquam adhuc incassum quaesiverunt steinfeldenses ipsum enim tomam adhuc florida in aete existentem ingentum auri massam curca Monasterium de Fodice perhibent. De quum el toties interrogatus ubi esset, cum risu respondere solitus erat, Job, Johannes et Zacharias, vel vobis vel posteris intagab, indicabunt. Idemque aliquando adiecere, se inventuris minime invisorum. Interalia huius abatis opera, Hoc memoria praecipue dignum indico quod fenestrum magnum in orientali partiale australis in ecclesia sua imaginibus optime in vitro depictus impleverit. It quod et ipsius effigies et insignia ibidem posita demonstrant. Domum quoque abatialem fere totem restauravit Puteo in atrio, ipsius effosso et lepidibus mamoreis, pulcre caelatis, exornato. Decesit autem, morte aliquantulum subitania peculsus, aetis sue anno septuaginta duo, incarnationis vero dominici, mille quinquigenti viginti novem. I suppose I shall have to translate this, said the antiquary to himself, as he finished copying the above lines from that rather rare and exceedingly diffuse book, the Certum Steinfeldensi Norbertinum. Well, it may as well be done first as last. Footnote. The Certum Steinfeldensi Norbertinum is an account of the Premonstratensian Abbey of Steinfeld, 
in the Eiffel with Lives of the Abbots, published at Cologne in 1712 by Christian Albert Erhardt, a resident in the district. The epithet Norbertinum is due to the fact that St. Norbert was founder of the Premonstratensian order. Return to text. And accordingly, the following rendering was very quickly produced. Up to the present day, there is much gossip among the canons about a certain hidden treasure of this abbot Thomas, for which those of Steinfeld have often made search, though hitherto in vain. The story is that Thomas, while yet in the vigour of life, concealed a very large quantity of gold somewhere in the monastery. He was often asked where it was, and always answered with a laugh, Job, John and Zechariah will tell either you or your successors. He sometimes added that he should feel no grudge against those who might find it. Among other works carried out by this abbot, I may specially mention his filling the great window at the east end of the south aisle of the church, with figures admirably painted on glass, as his effigy and arms in the window attest. He also restored almost the whole of the abbot's lodging, and dug a well in the court of it, which he adorned with beautiful carvings in marble. He died rather suddenly in the seventy-second year of his age, A.D. 1529. The object which the antiquary had before him at the moment was that of tracing the whereabouts of the painted windows of the Abbey Church at Steinfeld. Shortly after the Revolution, a very large quantity of painted glass made its way from the dissolved abbeys of Germany and Belgium to this country, and may now be seen adorning various of our parish churches, cathedrals, and private chapels. Steinfeld Abbey was among the most considerable of these involuntary contributors to our artistic possession. I'm quoting the somewhat ponderous preamble of the book which the antiquary wrote. And the greater part of the glass from that institution can be identified without much difficulty by the help either of the numerous inscriptions in which the place is mentioned, or of the subjects of the windows, in which several well-defined cycles or narratives were represented. The passage with which I began my story had set the antiquary on the track of another identification. In a private chapel, no matter where, he had seen three large figures, each occupying a whole light in a window, and evidently the work of one artist. Their style made it plain that that artist had been a German of the 16th century, but hitherto the more exact localizing of them had been a puzzle. They represented Will you be surprised to hear it? Job Patriarcha, Johannes Evangelista, Zacharias Propheta, and each of them held a book or scroll inscribed with a sentence from his writings. These, as a matter of course, the antiquary had noted, and had been struck by the curious way in which they differed from any text of the Vulgate that he had been able to examine. Thus the scroll in Job's hand was inscribed Auro est locus in quo absconditur for conflator. Footnote. Translation. There is a place for gold where it is hidden. Return to text. On the book of John was Habent investimentis suis scripturum quam nemo novit for 
in vestimento scriptum, the following words being taken from another verse. Footnote. Translation. They have on their raiment a writing which no man knoweth. Return to text. And Zacharias had super lapidem unum septum oculi sunt, which alone of the three represents an unaltered text. Footnote. Translation. Upon one stone are seven eyes. Return to text. A sad perplexity it had been to our investigator to think why these three personages should have been placed together in one window. There was no bond of connection between them, either historic, symbolic, or doctrinal, and he could only suppose that they must have formed part of a very large series of prophets and apostles, which might have filled, say, all the clerestory windows of some capacious church. But the passage from the Certum had altered the situation by showing that the names of the actual personages represented in the glass, now in Lord D.'s chapel, had been constantly on the lips of Abbot Thomas von Eschenhausen of Steinfeld, and that this abbot had put up a painted window, probably about the year 1520, in the south aisle of his abbey church. It was no very wild conjecture that the three figures might have formed part of Abbot Thomas's offering. It was one which, moreover, could probably be confirmed or set aside by another careful examination of the glass. And, as Mr. Somerton was a man of leisure, he set out on pilgrimage to the private chapel with very little delay. His conjecture was confirmed to the full. Not only did the style and technique of the glass suit perfectly with the date and place required, but in another window of the chapel he found some glass known to have been brought along with the figures, which contained the arms of Abbot Thomas von Eschenhausen. At intervals during his researches, Mr. Somerton had been haunted by the recollection of the gossip about the hidden treasure, and as he thought the matter over, it became more and more obvious to him that if the abbot meant anything by the enigmatical answer which he gave to his questioners, he must have meant that the secret was to be found somewhere in the window he had placed in the abbey church. It was undeniable, furthermore, that the first of the curiously selected texts on the scrolls in the window might be taken to have a reference to hidden treasure. Reader's note. The first text was, There is a place for gold where it is hidden. Returned text. Every feature, therefore, or mark which could possibly assist in elucidating the riddle, which he felt sure the abbot had set to posterity, he noted with scrupulous care, and returning to his Berkshire manor house, consumed many a pint of the midnight oil over his tracings and sketches. After two or three weeks, a day came when Mr. Somerton announced to his man that he must pack his own and his master's things for a short journey abroad, whither, for the moment, we will not follow him. Chapter 2 Mr. Gregory, the rector of Passbury, had strolled out before breakfast, it being a fine autumn morning, 
as far as the gate of his carriage drive, with intent to meet the postman and sniff the cool air. Nor was he disappointed of either purpose. Before he had time to answer more than ten or eleven of the miscellaneous questions propounded to him in the lightness of their hearts by his young offspring, who had accompanied him, the postman was seen approaching, and among the morning's budget was one letter bearing a foreign postmark and stamp, which became at once the object of an eager competition among the youthful Gregories, and addressed in an uneducated but plainly an English hand. When the rector opened it and turned to the signature, he realized that it came from the confidential valet of his friend and squire, Mr. Somerton. Thus it ran, Honoured Sir, as I am in a great anxiety about Master, I write at his wish to beg you, sir, if you could be so good as step over. Master has had a nasty shock and keeps his bed. I never have known him like this, but no wonder, and nothing will serve but you, sir. Master says, would I mention the short way here is drive to Koblenz and take a trap, hoping I have made all plain but I am much confused in myself what with anxiety and wakefulness at night. If I might be so bold, sir, it will be a pleasure to see a honest British face amongst all these foreign ones. I am, sir, your obedient servant, William Brown. P.S. The village, for town I will not term it, is named Steenfeld. The reader must be left to picture to himself in detail the surprise, confusion, and hurry of preparation into which the receipt of such a letter would be likely to plunge a quiet Berkshire parsonage in the year of grace, 1859. It is enough for me to say that a train to town was caught in the course of the day, and that Mr. Gregory was able to secure a cabin in the Antwerp boat, and a place in the Koblenz train. Nor was it difficult to manage the transit from that centre to Steinfeld. I labour under a grave disadvantage as narrator of this story, in that I have never visited Steinfeld myself, and that neither of the principal actors in the episode, from whom I derive my information, was able to give me anything but a vague and rather dismal idea of its appearance. I gather that it is a small place with a large church despoiled of its ancient fittings, a number of rather ruinous great buildings, mostly of the 17th century, surround this church, for the abbey, in common with most of those on the continent, was rebuilt in a luxurious fashion by its inhabitants at that period. It has not seemed to me worthwhile to lavish money on a visit to the place, for though it is probably far more attractive than either Mr. Somerton or Mr. Gregory thought it, there is evidently little, if anything, of first-rate interest to be seen, except, perhaps, one thing which I should not care to see. The inn where the English gentleman and his servant were lodged is, or was, the only possible one in the village. Mr. Gregory was taken to it at once by his driver, and found Mr. Brown waiting at the door. Mr. Brown, a model when in his Berkshire home, of the impassive, whiskered race who are known as confidential valets, was now egregiously out of his element in a light tweed suit, 
anxious, almost irritable, and plainly anything but master of the situation. His relief at the sight of the honest British face of his rector was unmeasured, but words to describe it were denied him. He could only say, Well, I am pleased, I'm sure, sir, to see you, and so I'm sure, sir, will master. How is your master, Brown? Mr. Gregory eagerly put in. I think he's better, sir, thank you, but he's had a dreadful time of it. I hope he's getting some sleep now, but what has been the matter? I couldn't make out from your letter. Was it an accident of any kind? Well, sir, I hardly know whether I'd better speak about it. Master was very particular. He should be the one to tell you. But there's no bones broke. That's one thing I'm sure we ought to be thankful. What does the doctor say? asked Mr. Gregory. They were by this time outside Mr. Somerton's bedroom door, and speaking in low tones. Mr. Gregory, who happened to be in front, was feeling for the handle, and chanced to run his fingers over the panels. Before Brown could answer, there was a terrible cry from within the room. In God's name, who is that? were the first words they heard. Brown, is it? Yes, sir. Me, sir. And Mr. Gregory? Brown hastened to answer, and there was an audible groan of relief in reply. They entered the room, which was darkened against the afternoon sun, and Mr. Gregory saw, with a shock of pity, how drawn, how damp with drops of fear was the usually calm face of his friend, who, sitting up in the curtained bed, stretched out a shaking hand to welcome him. "'Better for seeing you, my dear Gregory,' was the reply to the rector's first question, and it was palpably true. After five minutes of conversation, Mr. Somerton was more his own man, Brown afterwards reported, than he had been for days. He was able to eat a more than respectable dinner, and talked confidently of being fit to stand a journey to Coblenz within twenty-four hours. But there's one thing, with a return of agitation which Mr. Gregory did not like to see, which I must beg you to do for me, my dear Gregory. Don't he went on, laying his hand on Gregory's to forestall any interruption. Don't ask me what it is, or why I want it done. I'm not, not up to explaining it yet. It, it would throw me back, undo all the good you have done me by coming. The only word I will say about it is that you run no risk whatever by doing it, and that Brown can and will show you tomorrow what it is. It's merely to put back, to keep something. No, no, I can't speak of it yet. Do you mind calling Brown? Well, Somerton, said Mr. Gregory as he crossed the room to the door, I won't ask for any explanations till you see fit to give them. And if this bit of business is as easy as you represent it to be, I will very gladly undertake it for you the first thing in the morning. Ah, oh, I was sure that you would, my dear Gregory. I was certain I could rely on you. I shall owe you more thanks than I can tell. Now, here is Brown. Brown, one word with you. Shall I go? interjected Mr. Gregory. Not at all. Dear me, no. Brown, the first thing tomorrow morning, you don't mind early hours, I know, Gregory. You must take the rector to there, you know, a nod from Brown, who looked grave and anxious, and he and you will put that back. You needn't be in the least alarmed. It's perfectly safe in the daytime. You know what I mean. It lies on the step, you know, where, where we put it. Brown swallowed dryly once or twice, and failing to speak, bowed. And, yes, that's all. 
Only this one other word, my dear Gregory. If you can manage to keep from questioning Brown about this matter, I shall be still more bound to you. Tomorrow evening, at latest, if all goes well, I shall be able, I believe, to tell you the whole story from start to finish. And now I wish you good night. Brown will be with me. He sleeps here. And if I were you, I should lock my door. Yes, be particular to do that. They, they like it, the people here, and it's better. Good night, good night. They parted upon this, and if Mr. Gregory woke once or twice in the small hours and fancied he heard a fumbling about the lower part of his locked door, it was perhaps no more than what a quiet man suddenly plunged into a strange bed and the heart of a mystery might reasonably expect. Certainly he thought to the end of his days that he had heard such a sound twice or three times between midnight and dawn. He was up with the sun, and out in company with Brown soon after. Perplexing as was the service he had been asked to perform for Mr. Somerton, it was not a difficult or an alarming one, and within half an hour from his leaving the inn it was over. What it was, I shall not as yet divulge. Later in the morning, Mr. Somerton, now almost himself again, was able to make a start from Steinfeld, and that same evening, whether at Koblenz or at some intermediate stage on the journey I am not certain, he settled down to the promised explanation. Brown was present, but how much of the matter was ever really made plain to his comprehension, he would never say, and I am unable to conjecture. Chapter 3 This was Mr. Somerton's story. You know roughly, both of you, that this expedition of mine was undertaken with the object of tracing something in connection with some old painted glass in Lord D.'s private chapel. Well, the starting point of the whole matter lies in this passage from an old printed book, to which I will ask your attention. And at this point Mr. Somerton went carefully over some ground with which we are already familiar. On my second visit to the chapel, he went on, my purpose was to take every note I could of figures, lettering, diamond scratchings on the glass, and even apparently accidental markings. The first point which I tackled was that of the inscribed scrolls. I could not doubt that the first of these, that of Job, there is a place for the gold where it is hidden, with its intentional alteration, must refer to the treasure. So I applied myself with some confidence to the next, that of St. John. They have on their vestures a writing which no man knoweth. The natural question will have occurred to you. Was there an inscription on the robes of the figures? I could see none. Each of the three had a broad black border to his mantle, which made a conspicuous and rather ugly feature in the window. I was nonplussed, I will own, and, but for a curious bit of luck, I think I should have left the search where the canons of Steinfeld had left it before me. But it so happened that there was a good deal of dust on the surface of the glass, and Lord D, happening to come in, noticed my blackened hands, and kindly insisted on sending for a Turk's head broom to clean down the window. There must, I suppose, have been a rough piece in the broom. Anyhow, as it passed over the border of one of the mantles, I noticed that it left a long scratch, and that some yellow stain instantly showed up. I asked the man to stop his work for a moment, 
and ran up the ladder to examine the place. The yellow stain was there, sure enough, and what had come away was a thick black pigment, which had evidently been laid on with the brush after the glass had been burnt, and could therefore be easily scraped off without doing any harm. I scraped accordingly, and you will hardly believe, no, I do you an injustice, you will have guessed already, that I found under this black pigment two or three clearly formed capital letters in yellow stain on a clear ground. Of course, I could hardly contain my delight. I told Lord D that I had detected an inscription which I thought might be very interesting, and begged to be allowed to uncover the whole of it. He made no difficulty about it whatever, told me to do exactly as I pleased, and then, having an engagement, was obliged, rather to my relief, I must say, to leave me. I set to work at once, and found the task a fairly easy one. The pigment, disintegrated, of course, by time, came off almost at a touch, and I don't think that it took me a couple of hours, all told, to clean the whole of the black borders in all three lights. Each of the figures had, as the inscription said, a writing on their vestures which nobody knew. This discovery, of course, made it absolutely certain to my mind that I was on the right track. And now, what was the inscription? While I was cleaning the glass, I almost took pains not to read the lettering, saving up the treat until I had got the whole thing clear. And when that was done, my dear Gregory, I assure you, I could almost have cried from sheer disappointment. What I read was only the most hopeless jumble of letters that was ever shaken up in a hat. Here it is. Job, D-R-E-V-I-C-I-O-P-E-D, M-O-O-M, S-M-V, I-V-L, I-S-L-C-A-V, I-B-A, S-B-A, T-A-O-V-T, St. John, R-D-I-I-E-A-M-R-L-E-S-I-P-V-S-P-O-D-S-E-E-I-R-S-E-T-T-A-A-E-S-G-I-A-V-N-N-R. Zechariah, F-T-E-E-A-I-L-N. Blank as I felt, and must have looked for the first few minutes, my disappointment didn't last long. I realised almost at once that I was dealing with a cipher or cryptogram and I reflected that it was likely to be of a pretty simple kind, considering its early date, so I copied the letters with the most anxious care. Another little point, I may tell you, turned up in the process which confirmed my belief in the cipher. After copying the letters on Job's robe, I counted them to make sure that I had them right. There were thirty-eight, and just as I finished going through them, my eye fell on a scratching made with a sharp point on the edge of the border. It was simply the number 38 in Roman numerals. To cut the matter short, there was a similar note, as I may call it, in each of the other lights, and that made it plain to me that the glass painter had had very strict orders from Abbot Thomas about the inscription, and had taken pains to get it correct. 
Well, after that discovery, you may imagine how minutely I went over the whole surface of the glass in search of further light. Of course, I did not neglect the inscription on the scroll of Zechariah, Upon one stone are seven eyes, but I very quickly concluded that this must refer to some mark on a stone which could only be found in situ, where the treasure was concealed. To be short, I made all possible notes and sketches and tracings, and then came back to Parsbury to work out the cipher at leisure. Oh, the agonies I went through! I thought myself very clever at first, for I made sure that the key would be found in some of the old books on secret writing, the steganographia of Joachim Trithemius, who was an earlier contemporary of Abbot Thomas, seemed particularly promising, so I got that and Selenius's cryptographia, and Bacon's De Augmented Scientarum, and some more, but I could hit upon nothing. Then I tried the principle of the most frequent letter, taking first Latin and then German as a basis. That didn't help either. Whether it ought to have done so, I'm not clear. And then I came back to the window itself and read over my notes, hoping, almost against hope, that the abbot might himself have somewhere supplied the key I wanted. I could make nothing out of the colour or pattern of the robes. There were no landscape backgrounds with subsidiary objects. There was nothing in the canopies. The only resource possible seemed to be in the attitudes of the figures. Job, I read, scroll in left hand, forefinger of right hand extended upwards. John, holds inscribed book in left hand, with right hand blesses, with two fingers. Zechariah, scroll in left hand, right hand extended upwards as Job, but with three fingers pointing up. In other words, I reflected, Job has one finger extended, John has two, Zechariah has three. May not there be a numerical key concealed in that? My dear Gregory, said Summerton, laying his hand on his friend's knee, that was the key. I didn't get it to fit at first, but after two or three trials I saw what was meant. After the first letter of the inscription, you skip one letter. After the next, you skip two. And after that, skip three. Now, look at the result I got. I've underlined the letters which form words. Reader's Note Letters are underlined in the inscriptions as described above, and the resultant message is described in the following words from Somerton. End of reader's note. Do you see it? Decem, milia, auri, reposita, sunt imputeo, in at... Footnote. Translation. Ten thousand pieces of gold are laid up in a well in return to text, followed by an incomplete word beginning AT. So far, so good. I tried the same plan with the remaining letters, but it wouldn't work, and I fancied that perhaps the placing of dots after the last three letters might indicate some difference of procedure. Then I thought to myself, wasn't there some allusion to a well in the account of Abbot Thomas? In that book, The Certum. Yes, there was. He built a puteus in atrio, a well in the court. There, of course, was my word atrio. The next step was to copy out the remaining letters of the inscription, omitting those I had already used, 
That gave what you will see on this slip. R-V-I-I-O-P-D-O-O-S-M-V-V-I-S-C-A-V-B-S-B-T-A-O-T-D-I-E-A-M-L-S-I-V-S-B-D-E-E-R-S-E-T-A-E-G-I-A-M-R-
that it will be on the eastern side of the cloister, or, as of the dormitory, that it will communicate with the transept of the church. I felt that if I asked many questions, I might awaken lingering memories of the treasure, and I thought it best to try first to discover it for myself. It was not a very long or difficult search. That three-sided court southeast of the church, with deserted piles of building round it, and grass-grown pavement, which you saw this morning, was the place. And glad enough I was to see that it was put to no use, and was neither very far from our inn, nor overlooked by any inhabited building. There were only orchards and paddocks on the slopes east of the church. I can tell you that fine stone glowed wonderfully in the rather watery yellow sunset that we had on the Tuesday afternoon. Next, what about the well? There was not much doubt about that, as you can testify. It is really a very remarkable thing. That curb is, I think, of Italian marble, and the carving, I thought, must be Italian also. There were reliefs, you will perhaps remember, of Eliza and Rebecca, and of Jacob opening the well for Rachel, and similar subjects. But by way of disarming suspicion, I suppose, the abbot had carefully abstained from any of his cynical and elusive inscriptions. I examined the whole structure with the keenest interest, of course, a square wellhead with an opening in one side, an arch over it with a wheel for the rope to pass over, evidently in very good condition still, for it had been used within sixty years, or perhaps even later, though not quite recently. Then there was the question of depth and access to the interior. I suppose the depth was about sixty to seventy feet, and as to the other point, it really seemed as if the abbot had wished to lead searchers up to the very door of his treasure house, for as you tested for yourself, there were big blocks of stone bonded into the masonry, and leading down in a regular staircase, round and round the inside of the well. It seemed almost too good to be true. I wondered if there was a trap, if the stones were so contrived as to tip over when a weight was placed on them, but I tried a good many with my own weight and with my stick, and all seemed, and actually were, perfectly firm. Of course, I resolved that Brown and I would make an experiment that very night. I was well prepared. Knowing the sort of place I should have to explore, I had brought a sufficiency of good rope and bands of webbing to surround my body, and crossbars to hold to, as well as lanterns and candles and crowbars, all of which would go into a single carpet bag and excite no suspicion. I satisfied myself that my rope would be long enough, and that the wheel for the bucket was in good working order, and then we went home to dinner. I had a little cautious conversation with the landlord, and made out that he would not be over much surprised if I went out for a stroll with my man about nine o'clock, to make, heaven forgive me, a sketch of the abbey by moonlight. I asked no questions about the well, and am not likely to do so now. I fancy I know as much about it as anyone in Steinfeld, at least with a strong shudder. I don't want to know any more. Now we come to the crisis, and though I hate to think of it, I feel sure, Gregory, that it will be better for me in all ways to recall it just as it happened. We started, Brown and I, at about nine with our bag, and attracted no attention, for we managed to slip out at the hinder end of the inn-yard which brought us quite to the edge of the village. In five minutes we were at the well, and for some little time we sat on the edge of the wellhead to make sure that no one was stirring or spying on us. 
All we heard was some horses cropping grass out of sight further down the eastern slope. We were perfectly unobserved and had plenty of light from the gorgeous full moon to allow us to get the rope properly fitted over the wheel. Then I secured the band round my body beneath the arms. We attached the end of the rope very securely to a ring in the stonework. Brown took the lighted lantern and followed me. I had a crowbar. And so we began to descend cautiously, feeling every step before we set foot on it and scanning the walls in search of any marked stone. Half aloud, I counted the steps as we went down, and we got as far as the 38th before I noticed anything at all irregular in the surface of the masonry. Even here there was no mark, and I began to feel very blank and to wonder if the abbot's cryptogram could possibly be an elaborate hoax. At the 49th step, the staircase ceased. It was with a very sinking heart that I began retracing my steps, and when I was back on the 38th, Brown with the lantern being a step or two above me, I scrutinized the little bit of irregularity in the stonework with all of my might, but there was no vestige of a mark. Then it struck me that the texture of the surface looked just a little smoother than the rest, or at least in some way different. It might possibly be cement, and not stone. I gave it a good blow with my iron bar. There was a decidedly hollow sound, though that might be the result of our being in a well. But there was more. A great flake of cement dropped onto my feet, and I saw marks on the stone underneath. I had tracked the abbot down, my dear Gregory. Even now I think of it with a certain pride. It took but a very few more taps to clear the whole of the cement away, and I saw a slab of stone about two feet square, upon which was engraven a cross. Disappointment again, but only for a moment. It was you, Brown, who reassured me by a casual remark. You said, if I remember right, it's a funny cross, looks like a lot of eyes. I snatched the lantern out of your hand and saw with inexpressible pleasure that the cross was composed of seven eyes, four in a vertical line, three horizontal. The last of the scrolls in the window was explained in the way I had anticipated. Here was my stone with the seven eyes. So far the abbot's data had been exact, and as I thought of this, the anxiety about the guardian returned upon me with increased force. Still, I wasn't going to retreat now. Without giving myself time to think, I knocked away the cement all round the marked stone, and then gave it a prize on the right side with my crowbar. It moved at once and I saw that it was but a thin, light slab, such as I could easily lift out myself, and that it stopped the entrance to a cavity. I did lift it out unbroken, and set it on the step, for it might be very important to us to be able to replace it. Then I waited for several minutes on the step just above. I don't know why, but I think to see if any dreadful thing would rush out. Nothing happened. Next, I lit a candle, and very cautiously I placed it inside the cavity, with some idea of seeing whether there were foul air, and of getting a glimpse of what was inside. There was some foulness of air which very nearly extinguished the flame, but in no long time it burned quite steadily. The hole went some little way back, and also on the right and left of the entrance, and I could see some rounded light-coloured objects within, which might be bags. 
There was no use in waiting. I faced the cavity and looked in. There was nothing immediately in the front of the hole. I put my arm and felt to the right very gingerly. Just give me a glass of cognac, Brown. I'll go on in a moment, Gregory. Well, I felt to the right, and my fingers touched something curved that felt, yes, more or less like leather, dampish it was, and evidently part of a heavy, full thing. There was nothing, I must say, to alarm one. I grew bolder, and putting both hands in as well as I could, I pulled it to me, and it came. It was heavy, but moved more easily than I had expected. As I pulled it towards the entrance, my left elbow knocked over and extinguished the candle. I got the thing fairly in front of the mouth and began drawing it out. Just then, Brown gave a sharp ejaculation and ran quickly up the steps with the lantern. He'll tell you why in a moment. Startled as I was, I looked round after him and saw him stand for a minute at the top and then walk away a few yards. Then I heard him call softly, All right, sir, and went on pulling out the great bag in complete darkness. It hung for an instant on the edge of the hole then slipped forward onto my chest and put its arms round my neck. My dear Gregory, I'm telling you the exact truth. I believe I am now acquainted with the extremity of terror and repulsion which a man can endure without losing his mind. I can only just manage to tell you now the bare outline of the experience. I was conscious of a most horrible smell of mould and of a cold kind of face pressed against my own, and moving slowly over it, and of several, I don't know how many legs or arms or tentacles or something clinging to my body. I screamed out, Brown says, like a beast, and fell away backwards from the step on which I stood, and the creature slipped downwards, I suppose, onto that same step. Providentially, the band round me held firm. Brown did not lose his head and was strong enough to pull me up to the top, and get me over the edge quite promptly. How he managed it exactly, I don't know, and I think he would find it hard to tell you. I believe he contrived to hide our implements in the deserted building nearby, and with very great difficulty he got me back to the inn. I was in no state to make explanations, and Brown knows no German. But next morning I told the people some tale of having had a bad fall in the abbey ruins, which I suppose they believed. And now, before I go further, I should just like you to hear what Brown's experiences during those few minutes were. Tell the rector, Brown, what you told me. Well, sir, said Brown, speaking low and nervously. It was just this way. Master was busy down in front of the hole, and I was holding the lantern and looking on, when I heard something drop in the water from the top, as I thought. So I looked up, and I see someone's head looking over at us. I suppose I must have said something and I held the light up and ran up the steps, and my light shone right on the face. That was a bad one, sir, if ever I see one. A holdish man, and the face very much fell in and laughing, as I thought. And I got up the steps as quick, pretty nigh as I'm telling you. When I was out on the ground, there weren't a sign of any person. There hadn't been the time for anyone to get away, let alone a hold chap. And I made sure he weren't crouching down by the well, nor nothing. Next thing, I hear Master cry out, something horrible and all I see was him hanging out by the rope, and as Master says, however I got him up, I couldn't tell you. You hear that, Gregory? said Mr. Somerton. Now, does any explanation of that incident strike you? 
The whole thing is so ghastly and abnormal that I must own it puts me quite off my balance. But the thought did occur to me that possibly the, well, the person who set the trap might have come to see the success of his plan. Just so, Gregory, just so. I can think of nothing else so likely, I should say, if such a word had a place anywhere in my story. I think it must have been the abbot. Well, I haven't got much more to tell you. I spent a miserable night, Brown sitting up with me. Next day I was no better, unable to get up, no doctor to be had, and if one had been available I doubt if he could have done much for me. I made Brown write off to you, and spent a second terrible night. And Gregory, of this I am sure, and I think it affected me more than the first shock, for it lasted longer, there was someone or something on the watch outside my door the whole night. I almost fancy there were two. It wasn't only the faint noises I heard from time to time all through the dark hours, but there was the smell, the hideous smell of mould. Every rag I had on me on that first evening I had stripped off and made Brown take it away. I believe he stuffed the things into the stove in his room. And yet the smell was there, as intense as it had been in the well, and what is more it came from outside the door. But with the first glimmer of dawn it faded out, and the sounds ceased too. And that convinced me that the thing or things were creatures of darkness, and could not stand the daylight. And so I was sure that if anyone could put back the stone, it or they would be powerless until someone else took it away again. I had to wait until you came to get that done. Of course I couldn't send Brown to do it by himself, and still less could I tell anyone who belonged to the place. Well, there is my story, and if you don't believe it, I can't help it, but I think you do. Indeed, said Mr. Gregory, I can find no alternative. I must believe it. I saw the well and the stone myself. I had a glimpse, I thought, of the bags or something else in the hole. And to be plain with you, Summerton, I believe my door was watched last night, too. I dare say it was, Gregory, but thank goodness that is over. Have you, by the way, anything to tell about your visit to that dreadful place? Very little, was the answer. Brown and I managed easily enough to get the slab into its place, and he fixed it very firmly with the irons and wedges you had desired him to get and we contrived to smear the surface with mud, so that it looks just like the rest of the wall. One thing I did notice in the carving on the wellhead, which I think must have escaped you, it was a horrid, grotesque shape, perhaps more like a toad than anything else, and there was a label by it inscribed with the two words, Depositum Custodi, footnote, translation, Keep that which is committed to thee return to text. End of The Treasure of Abbot Thomas The Last Story in Volume 1 of Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by M. R. James